0: Today, I'm super pumped and excited to have my brother, James Hill, founder of HairBust, who you guys just sold recently, to JD Fashion and Sport Group, a 12 billion market cap public company listed on the the FTSE. So James is the kind of guy who you don't hear much uh, talking, but who achieved much more than most people will actually ever achieve in life. And he's only 33. As a proof of that, he was already financially free before even selling his company a few months ago, so today we'll talk about a lot of different topics, starting starting a business, bringing it to the next level, and selling it to a huge group, of course. But we'll also talk about investing, retiring early, crypto, education, and a bunch of other super cool topics that James excels at. Thank you so much for doing this, man. You're welcome.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Yes. So let's start directly with. Uh, I mean, before starting the the, the, the the questions, can you give us a context on what Hairburst is and what happened recently so we have a good context before uh, yeah, yeah. diving deeper into the conversation? Yeah, sure.
1: So Hairburst is a uh, cosmetics company. So we sell predominantly hair care products. Um, we started off selling online, so we're quite big on social media. So I think in total, our social media pages uh, are like 1.2, 1.3 million followers now. Um, so e-commerce is like 50% of the business and then we have our retail side so we sell into 20,000 stores uh, across the world mostly uh, Europe, America and Asia so everywhere pretty much now so 20,000 store groups
0: Awesome and and can you tell us what happened recently?
1: So we um, it was a long process but we I mean when we built the business it was all bootstraps so we never raised any money we started with 4k pounds when we when we uh, Started the business. Never raised any money along the way. Um after nine years of, of doing that, we decided to exit a majority share. So we sold it to uh yeah, in the end it was JD.
0: Okay, perfect. So now that we have the context that's basically set up, can you tell us who you are and talk to us about your background even before hairburst and uh, and then we'll 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 talk about basically the Herburst story. But start first b- before Hairburst. Before Hairburst, okay. I'm just uh,
1: a pretty normal guy from North Leeds, which you keep reminding me with my accent. <laughs> um, so I grew up in uh, a town called Scunthorpe, which is about an hour from Leeds. Um, I did go to university, but I studied sports. I was always interested in sport, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. But I quickly realised within the first few weeks of starting university that in order to have a full life let's say or a fully enjoyable life then it's quite important to get some level of financial uh, assets behind you so quite early on when I started you know I decided I wanted to build a business I didn't actually know what that was ever going to be I never expected it to be in hair care um, and I did a lot of things before hairburst to try and find money I guess um, between like playing poker to selling things on eBay selling things on Amazon um, I kind of built up a background in selling online I guess to to be able to launch Airbus successfully when we, we did.
0: Can you can you detail a bit more what you did on Amazon, what you tried, if it if it kind of worked, didn't yeah, yeah. work, like what's the basically takeaway of like this Amazon experience? And and when is that? So people can kind of contextualize the the, the time. Yeah. So okay. So I'll go back. Um, so during
1: university I was playing poker. So that was like that was actually a really big part of what I did because it taught me to think mathematically, I guess. So um, I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto this, but in terms of like launching a business, whether it's e-com or in crypto or anything, I think just a base understanding of like finances and mathematics is, is really useful. And I actually gained that through playing poker, which is not a, uh, a normal route to go, but that, that was relatively successful. So I made some money doing that. And then um, I did a lot of travel, uh, after university, with while I was playing poker, and then th- the start of the e-commerce stuff was a, I had a job at a phone shop, and I used to sell phones on eBay. So I used to buy uh, second-hand phones and then resell them on eBay when I, you know, I could make a profit. So I did that for about okay. seven or eight months, and that's how I started selling
0: things online. Yeah. Uh, what did you do with the poker money? Did you just use it to to travel? Did you start investing already? Like, how? how what was the mindset? Or the goal.
1: So our goal was always freedom. Really, um, this is how I was super young. Now I was like, this is like when I was like nineteen. So I knew some people who were quite successful playing poker, and I was like interested in it. And I always like playing games and playing sport, and I kind of just saw it as that. And I think poker often gets confused with gambling when actually it's a game of of skill uh, and there's luck involved as well. But I had a pretty good win rate across like the three or four years I did that. So was able to earn consistent money every month and I wasn't investing yet um my goal was to save money so that I could go traveling into Thailand and Bali and places like that so that's that's what I did with that was the ultimately the goal because I knew if I could get just like a steady income through anything that was remote or on my laptop then I could I could travel that was the literally the goal then
0: okay and that's that's in the early 2010s yeah after you so that's like 2010 2011 okay so okay yeah, because I, I I I kind of don't re, don't really remember that uh, that time that maybe I was a bit too I don't know but like it it seems that it's actually pretty early on that you understood that this entire remote uh, remote life and remote work thing yeah um, so that was why, how
1: I'm trying to think why where that came around from I mean it was kind of so two of my good friends who actually were founders in Hairburst with me. Um, we was at university and they just, it was always a thing where you finish union, you go travelling. Doesn't mean it wasn't about that, but that th- even then it was more like you save money, you go travelling, but you you then just come back and get a job. Mm-hmm. It was like a gap that people found, like a six month gap. Um, whereas for me, if I could get away to work on my laptop, I could do it longer. That was basically yeah. the plan just do it longer, you know? So I needed to find a way to get income and like people, I guess, would work at bars or whatever. But because I found the poker thing and I really, wanted to have that as a career at the time it was on the laptop and I understood I could do it elsewhere so I thought that was really cool.
0: Where do you think this mindset is from is coming from like is it coming from you know because this, there is as you say there is like the, the people who think I'm just going to finish my studies then I'm going to go travel and enjoy and go crazy but then you know the normal life is you go back to your, your village or your country mm-hmm. and you work like did you have some kind of you know, you have some kind of anxiety about that, about feeling stuck in one place, or do you just say, I don't know, where, where, where do you feel like this longer-term thinking already mm. at that age is, for, is coming from? Um. Because there's no reason why, why you should stop after six months. There's no reason why you should just come back to your normal life and do what everybody's doing.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, when it was, I don't know where that initial... Um, mindset came from but I do know that when I went traveling in the first time I realized you could stay in a nice hotel in Thailand for like 10 pounds a night with air con and you got a shower and that's that was enough you know so that that was like a, that cemented it for me and um but before that I, I guess it was I think I probably had a bit of anxiety around just not making the most of of life so I still have that mindset today and that's kind of how I live my life for the last 10 years is just trying to make the most of it and there's lots of things that have happened over the last five, 10 years that have like cemented that in my, in my mind is just like trying to enjoy my, my time as much as I can but it really kicked on um, when I did that trip and I realised you could live without that much money actually. Mm. Uh, things have obviously changed now but uh, and I read the book The 4-Hour Work Week, which I talk a lot about but it's not about working four hours a week. It was more about the fundamentals of e-commerce that were displayed in that book was like really useful to me. I mean, this book was written in, I'm definitely going to get this wrong, probably 2008 or something. So like the stuff that's in that book now is outdated, but in terms of like core principles on working on your laptop, building an e-commerce business, like how the world's becoming decentralized. This is like back back then. Mm. It's obviously accelerated now hugely, but from an e-commerce perspective, that was... That was a big book for me. I really cemented what I thought
0: is what I don't want to do with my life. Part of it anyway. Awesome. So, I mean, before we talk about the Herbert story, so basically the kind of takeaway from this part and that we'll basically get back to afterwards is this realization that you actually don't need that much money mm. to live a decent life because you can move around. Mm-hmm. And and this should basically lower the, the anxiety or the stress of most people were stuck in their place and think they need to make it there. They need to make, I don't know how much money mm-hmm. per month or per year. While if you just literally take a suitcase, go somewhere else, you can live with 10 times less money and actually, it's not just, I mean, going to going to Thailand is not necessarily just for holidays. And like, that's something that, I mean, I think it's more and more people are, are starting to think like that, but still based on, I don't know, culture or like what your parents think of you or all that stuff. Like, we feel like we need to grow or develop a life where we are while we just don't have to. And, yeah. and you can decrease so much your anxiety or your stress about life. If you just understand that you can do what we call geographic arbitrage. You just move somewhere else, that's cheaper. Provided you find, provided you find a way to make, let's say 1K a month or 2K a month. Like the most important thing is probably to focus on that. How do I make one or 2K or 3K a month from anywhere and then just adapt my life and go live somewhere else, so mm. I can lower my stress in life and live a better life, basically. Yeah. So back back then, I mean, I used
1: to I used to have this journal that I used to write in a lot as well. But it was I kind of had a plan of forty k was like my number, and I was like, if I can get that, then that should enable forty k a year. Yeah, pounds. But that was that was literally it when I first built Hairburst. Um, that was the goal is to be able to build something that provided me with that every year to be able to live that lifestyle, which is what I wanted at the time. And obviously things changed over over the time, but um, what, what you're saying is, yeah. I mean, we know we agree on a lot of things already, but yeah, exactly what you're saying. And I think going back to your previous point about, um, I think what you're talking about is almost like a, it's like a social game that people play, which is actually irrelevant people f- find it hard to see that when you're talking about like keeping up with the Joneses is like the term but people see like other people doing well or have certain things and they and that drives people's behavior that's the human trait but it's actually pointless because it's not going to make you happy so yeah
0: yeah because at the end of the day no one cares about your life <laughs> they have <laughs> enough struggles and problems in their own life yeah so that they just they just don't have time to to think about yours basically mm-hmm. But it's a, big, it's a big thing. I have the same, like especially when you get out of whatever university time or whatever school time, you're basically 20 or something like that. You're in insecure and you feel like everybody's going to judge you or actually care about all your actions. So even when you start, I don't know if whatever, you do a career change or you take a break for one year or six months. You think, oh, I can do that. Uh, uh, my future employer will see on my CV that I have a six month break or one year break. How am I going to justify that? Or... I don't know. You change your career. How I'm going to justify that I change from whatever career to another? Or when you start a business, you think, oh, if I fail, like everybody's going to make fun of me or whatever. I need to succeed so people think that this guy is the goat or this girl is the goat. But no one gives a fuck. No one cares basically. Mm. And like, the faster you understand that, the faster you. But it's like uh, yeah, and the, and it, but like all
1: the social stuff. Like I guess social anxiety is probably the term. But like I really cared when I. So I did the poker bit. I did the traveling bit. This is like pre hair burst. I was selling the used phones, but I had a job at Phones for You selling phones, and like I hated the thought of people seeing me there because mm. my I was attached to what I thought I was, which was like travel, poker, successful in a way at the time for my age. And then mm. spent all my money traveling. Came back home. I was at Phones for You. I was selling phones, right? And I was actually making a load of money because I was buying the phones off the customers who finished with their use phone and, and reselling them. But I still had the blue shirt on. I still had my trousers on. I still had to be there at 10 o'clock and leave at 6 or whatever it was. And uh, that really bothered me, and really. I had, I had a bigger goal in my head and I knew where I was going And because I was doing the stuff on the side. I was uh, I was doing okay money-wise, but it wasn't what I wanted to be and it, I felt really anxious around that.
0: Yeah, when at the end of the day it was just one step towards your final goal yeah. and like if you understand that and you look at the big picture and you think a bit more long term like you need to do these things that are not that sexy mm-hmm. to get to wh- wherever you want in life because you're not going to get there in one month it's going to take you many years and it's a step-by-step pro- process okay so let's talk about the herbus story so can you tell us about the beginnings how did it all start so it
1: started um so I knew, I knew I wanted to do e-commerce um, and a big, big factor was uh, the change in social media. So I actually had another job in between the phones and the hair burst out. And So I worked at a uh, marketing agency in Leeds, um, which used to focus on mostly search engine optimization and pay-per-click advertising, which was like the main, this is like 2011. So that was like, I mean, it's still really popular today, but that's what the agency focused on. And I, I can't remember the year, I believe it was 2012, uh, It was when Instagram started. And um it was quite apparent quite early that because I would speak to the business owners when I was working in this agency, because I was a sales guy. So I'd go to a um I'd go to see a business owner who who maybe sells like I can't remember one was like beds, another one would sell like sheds or like tools or um one was sports nutrition products. So I'd go speak to the owners and be like, Okay, how much money do you have on marketing? How much do you spend on this? How much do you spend on that? Um, And I would understand like their problems and struggles and and successes. But then as social media was coming around, it was quite evident that you could drive traffic to websites for much, much cheaper through social. So that's like Facebook, Instagram, even Twitter as well. Um, So e-commerce came from that. um, And we needed to find something that we could start with really so we need to find our own branded products because from selling phones i realized that if i wanted to make exponential wealth i had to build my own ip so i need to build a brand i needed to be like a private a privately owned intellectual property which was owned by us because that's where the value lies in in goods so um we wanted to be thought about maybe doing like sports nutrition but with the, the growth of instagram and the audience on instagram at the time like going into hair was like a Seemed like quite a good category to go into because we understood nutrition from a background in sport, mm. and uh, we needed to s- sell through Instagram. So something that's quite visual, like hair, was, was quite a good option. So that's where the idea came from.
0: Okay, awesome. And so, so how did you decide who to associate yourself with? Were there friends? Were there like people okay. who had complementary skill? Because like that's one of the key things when you start a business. Yeah. And and yes. Yeah, so.
1: So my two, um, so ultimately it was two best friends, now um, I, so I've never, so it was, it was me and, and uh Gwil and Craigie, I think you've met both of them, haven't you, yes. so um, we were best friends, we did the travelling trip together, we knew each other really well and it kind of just felt like a good idea to do it with my friends because it'd be fun, like. If I was to advise That's someone... That's very I'd, risky. Uh, yeah, now I know that, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, we're speaking to, um like, a lot of business owners today, and, like, I don't actually know what it's like to be a solo founder. It's like even my brother is here today. Like, he's running his business on his own. And, like, yeah, it's great because you have all the shares, but I've been so fortunate to have my two best friends with every day. And, like, I've said it many times, but I don't know if... I mean, there's no... First of all... At some point in a business's life, you never own the whole thing anyway because you're either raised for investment where you give shares away or you, you sell it so an acquirer comes in and buys like some shares. So It's very hard doing it. I know mean, people do it, right? But So for me, it was my two best friends. So, yeah, being a solo fan, I think it's very difficult to have people in, in there with you. like Working is good, but when I decided <laughs> to work with it, it was just my mates. So, yeah, very risky, but it all worked out. And so, we had great fun.
0: So you go basically to your best mates. How do you decide who is doing what? Like, do you know, okay, this guy has complementary skills, different skills, or you're just like, oh, we're a good bunch of good lads. Uh, what do you like to do the most? I'll do that, you do that, you do that, and let's see how it goes. Yeah, good question. So, And, and then maybe after that, you, you, can, you can maybe give your own opinion on building a business with friends and on choosing the roles in the beginning for yeah. like people who want to start businesses to see how, how do you maximize the chances of making it work, knowing that most of the business failures are actually coming from founding f- founding team problems? Oh, 100%, right, yeah, okay.
1: So my, my example first, yeah. So yeah. it was fairly simple. So uh, one of my business partners, so he had a, this is like, a, this is just what he's like, but Craig, he had a, a page called Beers and Tats on Instagram. And he was like, at the time I didn't have a clue like why he would do that but he basically had this Instagram page called Beards and Tats and he would post guys um who were like really good looking and had like cool tattoos and beards right that was like he just used to do that <laughs> and I not and I never understood why he did it but he was like he's quite an arty guy like he's interested in like stuff like that I mean I I'm not like that at all but he, he was and I used to find it quite funny but before long he got to this is 10 years ago about? Oh, yeah, it's like 2012. Yeah, so it's 10 years ago, so it's actually, okay, okay. So he's, like, posting these guys, <laughs> and I'm like, why are you doing it? And he's like, oh, I just like to do it. Before long, he had, like, 10,000 followers, and then 20, and then 30. And now it's got probably 200,000 followers on this page. Um, And then he would get, and this is really important, actually, but he would then get requests from guys or, like, barbershops or brands to feature on his page. So he'd be like, oh, can you shout out my, like, so and so to post on the page and obviously they were going on the page they get loads of followers and it was it was like that's that whole whole game that we found ourselves involved in and that was a big eye-opener to me because I was at the agency speaking to business owners paying 10 20k a month for search engine optimization yet these get people are messaging my mate at home on this beard page <laughs> for like 20 quid but they're driving lots of traffic so I was like this is this this is like huge moment so Content was that, which is super important for a branded product, right? We needed to get content on the page. So that's what uh, Craggy focused on. And then Gore focused on the influencers. And I kind of took on um, the operations side. And then we kind of had this like three month phase of like figuring out who's good at doing what. Um, and I ultimately became like the CEO, major shareholder, but I kind of... I felt like I was I grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and like really like pulled it through, um, and I was more of the I used to think more bigger picture. So it was like in the end it worked out really well. So we had like Craggy was doing the content, Will used to do the influencer stuff, which was like real hard graph, but he used to like be really good at that, and I would kind of like monitor what was going on and like really push it forward. But I was also doing like customer service, supply, like loads of other bits. But we that was what we did. Um, so to, to actually give some useful advice I'm trying to think what was the question what, what would I recommend to people
0: so basically yeah it's I mean it, it, it kind of happened that I mean it looks like you kind of went with your lads you guys kind of define roles and kind of almost luckily everybody was good at what they were doing which which if you start with some friends is very, pretty unlikely to happen you mm-hmm. know I mean I think it's more unlikely than likely to happen so the main question is what would you recommend? I mean, every situation is different, but what would you recommend to people who are starting a business today to maximize their chances of not having a founding team falling apart? You know, do you start with your friends or do you look at do you look at what are the skills I need?
1: Mm-hmm. So friends is great because we had so much fun. Like we're literally in the garage, like packing these products together, like writing the labels together. We've got the music on. We're having a great time. So like... And that's important, like, having a good fun. you know. If you can have good fun, like, But at the same time, like, Will's dealing with, like, doing the influencer side and managing the content. I'm doing, like, all the operations and, like, planning out the finances and ordering the products in. And it's, it's a f- the, the fun side, because there's a lot of not fun in that. Like, I'm speaking to customers on, like, the house phone. Like, we're having customer calls, and I'm, like, dealing with that. So that's not that fun, but because we're all together, that was fun. So I think having a good time and somebody you enjoy being with is, like, key now only from running a business for 10 years and having like I mean working with so many different people and I mean now we've got like 50 staff or something and we weren't good at I wasn't good at hiring really like I've we've now got like unbelievable people in the business but a lot of that was like I'm learning over the last two years much more but I look back to some of my decisions when I was younger and it was like I didn't really know and have like a real structure of, of hiring the best people. Um, so, found, to give context for like making sure the founding teams work together, I mean, you can probably, if you just sit down, you probably find people with different skill sets. But I think what's really required to get things off the ground is just an entrepreneurial mindset. So, the same reason why, the same reason why uh, bigger businesses acquire smaller businesses, obviously because it's got to a certain stage, it gives it a seal of approval. So they go, okay, these guys can do things on their own. I think finding people who are doing that, it might be people have got, I don't know, like Craggy, for example, was doing the, the pages thing. Like he showed initiative to do something there. So he was had mm. potentials there as well. So um, I think finding people with initiative, finding people who are entrepreneurial um, and people you can enjoy spending time with. And I think as long as people are willing to learn new stuff, then that's important and also just finding winners like whether they're winners at sport or anything else it's all like really useful stuff
0: awesome so so basically you're having fun with your friends you are building something but probably it's the beginning so you're not really sure where it's going if it's something even really serious so what's what's the moment that you realise that it's not just for fun anymore that it's an actual business with potential Mm so so Like I said, at the start, our initial goal was like 40K, which was
1: a thing I figured out with expenses in terms of like traveling in the Southeast Asia or whatever. And we probably achieved that within seven, eight months. So 40K per person? Yeah. Um, And it was obvious that we could get there. So in terms of like technicalities, it was, we were driving people to this website and initially wasn't converting people. So I knew like from what we spent to what the products cost, we had to achieve a conversion rate on the site which I used to get, everyone used to take the piss out of me for at the time, but it was, I don't know if we got a conversion rate of like 2.5%, I think it was, that we could make enough money to be like, finish jobs that we were doing at the time. So we could focus on it full time. So there was like, when we hit that point, it was like, all the different pieces were working. Like, our product cost was this and it was fairly stable. Our conversion rate was this and it was fairly stable. And we can drive the traffic for this cost. Which was becoming more and more stable because we'd done it for a few months, mm. so the three pieces were together um, we did that, we had like good cash flow coming in, but a brand new business like you always have that well, I always had that thought of how long is this going to last? like how long can we pay the influences this much? How long can we drive traffic for at this mm. price? Um, how long is the Instagram algorithm going to be like this? you know and that's like more evident now, but back then, you kind of had this uncertainty um. So it was kind of serious from the start, but again, like my initial got was to travel. So I did a, a trip uh, to Fiji, actually, once I was, had enough money to do so and I could take a bit of time off. That was the first, I didn't have a holiday before that, it was like a two-year gap. Um, and I can remember thinking during that time, like everything's in play. Um, and then it started to get more serious when uh, we managed to get into stores because I was like, we've got the online business, we've now got the retail business. I look at older brands and be like, well, what's the difference between like this brand and the one that sold to like Church and Dwight for 100 plus million? Like we have the social media knowledge. We have the stores and this brand also has the stores, but we have the social side. We can grow here. We can grow here. And it was like, wow, this this thing can really become big if we just continue to do what we're doing, build a proper team, build out SKUs. And um, that was probably after like the first 15 or so months. So
0: can you tell, I mean, how do you deal with, you you said basically like, uh, I mean, building a business is exactly that. You have some kind of targets that are some goals. Okay, I want 40K per person. Uh, But then you have a bunch of assumptions. For example, the cost per influencer, the Instagram algorithm, all that stuff that you know is going to change. So basically, you're constantly in an uncertain state. And so, how do you live with that how how do you l- learn to be chill with that when you know a lot of people who want to start businesses probably never do it is because of that stuff because they're always going to think about all the things that could go wrong or that will change why would you tell to people i mean yeah how, how do you deal and become comfortable with uncertainty is it like a natural thing is it uh, i don't know you do more sport you have more testosterone like what what, what's the, or, you, or you just get used to it with time uh, uh, or, or more like how do you look at the positive and know things are going to change but you're going to find a solution versus looking at the negative which basically mm. is going to be all these changes that will happen anyway at a certain time.
1: I think, um, I mean, going back to how we dealt with it at the time was let's just make the most, put, we used to work like so hard, right? And just do everything that we could do, number one, like focus on what you can actually change focus on like a bit of a stoic mindset, like what can we actually change? Okay, we can just work 10 times harder now while we have opportunity to make good money at the time. So like we did that, but in terms of like a bigger picture thing, like once we got to the point where we were financially free, I guess, like probably this is when I was probably like 25, I would say I was probably, at that point I was probably financially free. For, for what I class financially free was, which is like a passive income of a certain amount. And get to that point first. That's like the ultimate goal, get there first. And then everything around you that might happen that can be quite stressful becomes much less stressful. Yeah. Now, up until last year or like 18 months ago, these things still stress me out, right? And I had I was essentially financially free, but I was still stressed about it. Because um, there's a lot of things you can't control and you can't do, but if you can get yourself into a, a safer position, um, then everything's a lot less stressful, I would say, which I understand is hard to do and we can talk about that, but
0: yeah. yeah, We'll talk about that later. So this was kind of the beginnings of the business. Now we're talking about growing the business. So basically when you're growing a business, there are key moments where you have to make some changes or some big changes to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. So what were those, I don't know, what what were the one or two like big changes that you had to do and what, 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 what were those?
1: So I'd probably say like you, come, you go through a stage in a business where like we were doers. So we are on the phone arranging like new deals with retailers, like going and doing the sales pitches, contacting the influencers, doing the customer service. So then going, okay, it then becomes a job of, uh, which I actually really enjoy um, and it's about capital allocation or like resource allocation and uh this is like a thing but do you ever play age of empires
0: i <laughs> did for maybe two or three months but yeah I'm not an expert in, but so, yeah
1: so like what i'm trying to say is like so on that game you basically have like wood gold <laughs> yeah. stone and whatever right and you basically have to allocate that in the right way to be able to build and that is literally the same as building a business so i used to that i don't know where that came from but that's just what i thought of. And I used to sometimes think that as well because you go, okay, I can't do anymore because if you continue to do, you can't grow past this startup because you can't grow past your time. But what do you have as a business? You have like money to spend, time, um, and essentially effort. So you have to like use those three things. Um, so with money, you can buy more time by getting more people, but they have to be managed and integrated properly. So it was about that phase, which was like the hiring phase, uh, applying the capital in the right places, like managing managing that. And then you can't, what's quite frustrating about it is you can't, like if I want to change something in the business now, I can't go and change it. I have to like speak to this person who tells this person who tells this person. So you go through that phase. So you go from like a doer to a, a leader almost. A, and that's what CEO's role is, is to allocate the right time and effort and direct different things which can be frustrating for some people but it's basically about delegation and we actually I think people can fall into two camps they can either over delegate or don't delegate as much I think for me I actually over delegate which means I'll, I'll put like resources so I'll put capital and responsibility with different areas of the business and just hope it just works out and the problem with that is it goes wrong whereas other people might be which is actually more common is they're so desperate to be on everything that nothing can scale. Because mm. if you want to do everything, you can't scale a business. You have to learn. So some people don't delegate enough, and they find themselves in a situation where they're doing everything, um, which is good because you have control. But then, how big can it possibly get? So I was actually the opposite of that. So I over-delegate, and things that go wrong everywhere. But yeah, that's that phase.
0: Okay, maybe maybe uh, some word on that. Like, what would you like? What would you say? if you over delegate like what didn't you do properly that could have have been done better so it so it would have gone wrong a bit less yeah so um,
1: I probably probably comes down to uh, education and um, probably like over expectation as well like I don't know this is a stupid example but like so with the Hairburst brand we have a clear brand message that we've built on and decided to have that. Now, we might have a salesperson. This hasn't actually happened, but this is just an example. Like you might hire somebody new in the sales team and they go and speak to different distributors in a new country. And what's super important is we get that message across to that distributor. Um, but unless you spend enough time with that person to educate them on what our brand values are, then that might come across wrong. And these things happen all the time. So I think to combat that is like more education slower process um and making sure that people are prepared prepared to do things that way or more importantly like have a really stringent recruitment process to ensure that you get people who are the right people as well which we yeah
0: can you tell us about some of the biggest pains you need to go through when you grow a business
1: Biggest pains, yeah.
0: Um, Can be anything. Can be mental health. Yeah. Can be uh, relationships with colleagues, with co-founders. Can be I don't know having to change some people who are at key positions or maybe fire them because you know that if you want to get to the next level, you need another kind of person, and so on and so forth. Um, biggest challenge, I mean, because I started. I mean, not sh- it's more like for me challenges could be like positive this is really like about the pains mm. like what are people who want to grow a business need to be yeah. basically ready for so what I, what I found and i realized i had to do this so
1: we um let's say i think this is a point where we had like maybe like 10 staff and three founders it was like 13 people and you kind of again like another analogy so i always look at it like because i like football i kind of compare things like if you're going to be growing it like 50% a year your business is going to 50% a year. you need to look around and be like hey is this a winning team is this like are we like the Man City or the Liverpool of of what we do and I'd be looking around and thinking okay where, where are we lacking what, what positions need to change and you have to kind of I mean it's not nice to like fire people it's not nice to like deliver bad news that's never going to get easier um, and I've got someone who does that for me now so <laughs> I don't have to deal with that but that I didn't have before and you have to go from okay we kind of went through a phase of like this is really fun with our mates but we had a few staff join that was really cool like we became their friends almost like straight away because we were nice guys and wanted to have fun and we'd hire people into the business and everything was fine but it was a bit like okay well this is not how a real winning team is built like you have to deliver bad news you have to fire people who are affecting the, the positive culture for example um and I had to become a different person then because I can't be everyone's mate. I can't be someone's friend and go out for mm. a few drinks and then fire them tomorrow because they miss a target or whatever. So I almost had to become like a different um, character, which was not, that wasn't easy because I didn't want to do that, but you kind of have to, right? You have to make sacrifices and you have to become not strict, but just accountable.
0: Okay. And like more or less like how much time would you need? Like, w- w- would you say you... You kind of needed from the moment you said, "Oh, uh, we need to be, uh, Manchester United, but we are not," uh, and and you realize it. But how much time, I don't know, weeks, months, years, until you say, "Okay, I'm actually going to do something about it because I'm the one who needs to do something about it." And yeah. you don't want to be doing it because you don't want to be, you don't want to be an asshole, basically. But mm. so, yeah, h- h- how long? The first time, at least. Mm-hmm.
1: so I mean if, if so I did look around and think well it's obviously me because I'm the majority shareholder, I'm the main beneficiary so I need to be accountable to make all these changes and if you've got, if you're in a situation where a position is not functioning properly like every, every book that you read will tell you that okay well like fire fast is the solution but that's not easy to do so it's yeah. take me months to be yeah. honest Um, but and I never, I never like you hear about like I don't know like super successful people like Steve Jobs and all these people who are like assholes and they would just sack people, like left right, and I was never like that. Being like that's probably the most the best way to be, but you can't just become that overnight. I can't anyway. I found that really difficult. Um, but it's yeah, it takes a lot of time to be able to behave in that way. I think.
0: What what would you turn? What do we turn to uh, to get advices in that kind of moments? Like mentors or books or both? So I, um,
1: and this is not a good thing, but I never had any mentors. And so I would just, I would just rely on books. Like uh, that's that's my, I mean, I could, that's the way I felt like I ingested information better from, even I used to just enjoy in reading stuff, which is like a, that's probably one of my biggest assets is I enjoy reading books. I mean, people can, learn from listening to podcasts or they can um, take information in different ways. Like for me, I always enjoyed reading and felt like I retained information through reading, which was what then enabled me to read so much more because I enjoy it. Um, So I would rely on books all the time. Like What we're talking about now is that middle phase, like Good to Great by Jim Collins is an amazing book where it's about getting people off the bus, getting the right people on the bus, keeping people accountable and all that kind of stuff.
0: Can you just repeat the name of the book?
1: Uh, Good to Great by... Uh, Jim Collins. Okay, good to read. Okay. Okay. Also. So that so um yeah, no mentors, I've relied on books completely a bit. I also think with books as well in general, like I think if I was to try and explain all the things that I thought was good to somebody, like we can spend two hours doing this today and and hopefully people can get information from it. But if I could sit down and write a book, which might take me a year, like so people all these people who have like been super successful have done that and it's in a book form, like um Oh, what's the sam walton who uh, founded walmart mm. he famously wrote a book in like i can not remember when it was probably 40 50 years ago um i think he was pretty much on his deathbed at the end of his life and he wrote a book and like it's there to read you know yeah, yeah. like how awesome is that so
0: and it's much more structured basically and people yeah. can take the time they need to i mean there's nothing better than a book to actually express an idea or a framework or t- to learn about it, absolutely. That's uh, It's really underrated. I mean, I, I'd say, I'm, I'm not everyone, but for, even for me, I was like, I was always thinking, oh, these books, like there's whatever, a lot. But the day you're really interested into something, for example, investing, which we'll talk about later, it's almost stupid, but you go, you, you find one or two books about investing and then you learn everything. And you're mm-hmm. like, holy shit, like I just, like I literally went from knowing nothing to learning everything in a structured fashion, which you can't find in podcasts. It's too short. Mm. And uh, so actually reading books, I mean, even Elon Musk basically, the reason he's been able to build rockets and understand all this stuff is because he's read Read all the books from every library on earth since he's three years old or five years old,
1: so. I I had that all the way through my life, like when I was 15 I, I was interested to know what it'd be like to be a professional football player I was never going to be one but I wanted to be one but I read like Paul Gascoigne's book was the first book I ever read and I really enjoyed it which was probably a big thing I read like Frank Lampard's book and and then I was, when I did the poker I was like okay I need to get good at poker to make money read loads of poker books went to e-commerce read e-commerce books before the sale of Airburst it was like right well I don't I don't know what's the best way of route to sell a business so I read loads of private equity books and now I spend a lot of time reading about investments and all that kind of stuff because. I'm in a different phase now, but that's kind of been a the theme throughout, yeah.
0: Okay, awesome. So um, we talked about books. There's a lot of uh, documentation out there about a lot of different things. And one of them is the reasons why, the biggest reasons why businesses fail. And one of them is actually founder founder's issues. It's very well, well documented that often it's not because, I don't know, you don't generate enough cash or you don't have enough customers that the business fails, but it's more, because you lose motivation, and often it's because there is some founder issues. So you guys basically seem to have like been able to really minimize this. Because you said that we're my two best friends, probably they're still in your circle of like best friends. Mm-hmm. What can you what can you tell us about the biggest challenge that you encountered with your with your co-founders? Um. So biggest challenge was
1: uh, craggy again. So he got. Uh, diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when we were quite young so we were like 25 I would say so he'd been running the business like two or three years Uh, and that was really challenging because obviously we wanted him in in there to be uh, working with but also um, that was just quite a difficult time because I had to figure out what to do about that from a business perspective you've got your best mate who you live with who's like been diagnosed with cancer and he's going through like chemotherapy and uh, I mean now he's actually he's fine now um, and he's he's doing really well but we had to navigate that and uh, ultimately we had to buy his pay his uh, buy his shares so he was able to spend time and focus on his health but that's a, from a business perspective that's a strain on capital so that was a that was a difficult thing to go through um, I think because we were friends as well between all three of us like it was quite Probably couldn't be as direct as you would be with other people because you don't want to upset them because you're your friends. Whereas if you had like a pure, um, a pure like business relationship with people, you probably would be a bit more direct. But we never wanted to. So the good thing is we had fun, but the bad thing is was we probably wasn't as direct as we could have been with with other people. Um, I think founder issues are it's often it's often a fallout on 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 strategy and, and plan. And also motivation as well. Like some people want to build a business to 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 50 or 100 or whatever. Um, And they're generally, especially in startups, they're very involved in the business. So it's a strain on on time and capital if they leave.
0: Um, But yeah, you always hear about stories like that. Okay, awesome. Um, Let's move on to the sale part of the business. Mm. So basically, when... I mean, there is your case, but like, when do you decide to, that you want to sell a business? So, in our
1: scenario, what happened was we started to get approached by different uh, companies and also by um,
0: advisors. So, w- w- when is that first time you get approached? Like, how many years are you into the project? And so, we were probably how f- well is it doing? And and how do they even know learn about you? So, we, we
1: got approached because we must have been doing pretty well because they obviously heard about the brand and heard about those guys and stuff so I'd probably say we were probably so from start to finish it was like a nine-year thing and probably like year five we started to get approached by potential investors buyers things like that and because the business was generating enough cash we were able to like take so what how we ran it was it was boot shots so we never raised any money um but because we were so like the overall goal was to get to 40k we wanted to to get to that point and, and more so we had to, could do that for longer so we, we would draw dividends down quite a lot if I was to do something again now I've got money behind me I'd probably go much more aggressive and grow like crazy and raise loads of debt and do this whole stuff but I didn't know about that at the time so we just draw money down into savings build the business that way
0: just, just a question do you do you have this kind of conversation with your co-founders about wealth creation a plan B beside your business you know about the the, 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 the basically saying, okay, we'll get this money as a dividend because the goal is to basically build wealth on the side. Like how, how much are they like into building wealth like you or are they like more kind of learning from you or like wh- how, how is it happening? Yeah. So I I sort of made all the decisions when it
1: came to that. Now, when the which is super important, the overall goal is to be financially free. So when you have like all this money sat in a business bank account, I want to put it into investment savings and, and draw it down, right? Um, and the way we run our business with like the e-commerce part and the retail part is all about diversifying the revenue streams so it was safer. And then zooming out a bit further, like personally, it was all about diversifying our long-term plan. So great, we've got the hair burst stuff and we've got the cash, but we can either deploy that cash into more hairburst growth or we can put it into safer assets and invest it that way. So that was kind of how it, how it came around. Um, again, I keep talking about books, which I don't mean to, but... Uh, I think we both read the same one, which was uh, "Money Master the Game." Money Master the game by Tony Robbins, yes. yeah, which is about this big, <laughs> <laughs> and it says the same thing about fifty times. <laughs> but I think just, it basically meant um, the idea around investment money. I can get seven percent a year. So in theory, if I get a million pounds, I get seventy thousand a year for, for, well, not for free, but on returns. So yeah. two million would be one. 140,000, 3 million, 210k. So it was like, once I realized that, it was like, let's draw it down, let's get the money in the investment funds and let that start to work. So if anything goes wrong here, I'm free forever, you know? So that was the plan there. But we'd gone through all that phase. Then we got contact, contacted to sell uh, the business by different advisors. I started to speak to PE funds by myself, which was probably a mistake because I wasn't ready for that. But we then appointed an advisor after like, Six years, um, but it's all based on demand, so like PE funds will contact me like every month, like, want to buy half your business, blah blah blah. So, okay. we need to figure out how to navigate that,
0: okay? Okay, so you have private equity firm contacting you, okay? Okay, uh, and then basically, so but they contact you, but you don't want to sell in the beginning, so how, how, you know, how long, how long basically since you started to think about actually selling, yeah, you know, like which comes probably later on. And then, so how long from that moment, when you think about selling, until a deal actually was made? Because that's probably, like I think people, what they need to understand, like for everything in life, but especially in business, is how long things take every time. So from the point
1: where we was like, okay, we're going to market to sell, to sell was 18 months. 18, okay. But before that, it was, there's a few things that happened in the market. Like I saw like, I mean, there's so many brands, but like a sports nutrition brand sold for like three times revenue. A competitor to ours sold for like three times revenue as well. So like all these different things were happening in the market. And I started to quickly realize like what the business was roughly worth, yeah. which is an indicator of like, okay, that'd be quite good if we could do that. But then we also wanted to make sure we got the business to the right position so it could do a transaction, which is where the advisors would help with. Um but then yeah, from from starting to go to market to actually coming to a deal was eighteen months, which is super long. And that was when we talk about challenges, I think I, res- I respect anybody who's kind of gone through that. To be able to build an asset that's can be sold to a a, a P fund or whoever it is it's a lot of work.
0: So how do we even go? So basically you say I want to at some point you say I want to be I want to sell my business. Yep. How do we even how do you even go about finding a buyer? And so yeah, you have PE firms com- coming, so private equity firms for mm-hmm. people who don't who don't know what PE means, coming to you. But like, how do you go about finding a buyer? Which for me, a buyer is someone who who you actually think you are going to be able to mm-hmm. to deal with. You know, not someone who just want to take to take advantage of you. Yeah.
1: So from a in terms of a process, so. Um, most people will appoint like a corporate finance advisor, so they will essentially be connected in that market. So I chose like a beauty-focused guy who uh, I trusted and did a lot of deals in the similar space. We had some inbound interest from various different funds, so I understood that there was demand for our business. But you obviously want to get the best deal, so in effect, you have a you hire a corporate finance advisor who gets the business in a position, and we create like a simple deck, like a, a PowerPoint, for example, that then gets. Sent through the market. So that'll go out to 20 or 10 potential. But we had like six, I think it was, inbound requests. So I knew people wanted the asset. Um, But the corporate finance advisor would would go out to market, send out the information. We'd then jump on various different calls and meetings with all the different people. Then you get, after that information, you get a round of first offers. And you kind of get a feel for which direction you want to go in.
0: Okay, and so what are the most important things to be careful when you're dealing with the buyer you know and c- and can you give us some concrete example based on your experience mm. you know because yeah. I think it's something that again like people only see the um, oh these people build this massive business or they sold for that much that's amazing but like they don't understand all the things that can go wrong when you're selling a business and yeah. they don't also understand that a lot of entrepreneurs get actually screwed built an amazing asset and then they get screwed mm. during that part of the process because because it's business at the end of the day and you're dealing with like much bigger companies with much bigger pockets and mm-hmm. very smart people who are not here to be your friend but to actually make money on the deal. And the cheaper they buy it
1: for the more money they make on the other side. So there's a few things that happen so and this is I've had this a few times speaking to like different founders is so they go for that stage of like speaking to the different people so then you get asked to the buyers will get asked to put through an indicative offer so an indicative offer is they've probably seen a powerpoint presentation they've probably seen some basic finance information and then they're asked to submit an offer right so what they all do is throw in a big offer so they'll go right okay whatever yeah a big offer that might be overinflated on what the actual asset's worth but that offer actually means nothing so at that point i would suggest that you kind of I mean, it is all about people, business is about people. So you need to work with people you're going to trust, I would say. Like, once the the indicative offers have come in, you then go into a, a phase of like real due diligence, which is like super hard work because you're on calls like every day. It's probably like a two month process of like going through all the finance information, all the legal information, checking this, checking that, going through business strategy, all this kind of stuff. So, and then after that, which is like two months later, then you get your final offer and then you have like a negotiation phase. There. So I think um, I wouldn't get too carried away with indicative offers because it doesn't really mean anything and it can change at any moment. Um, I think you kind of going to, I mean, if dealing with, we didn't actually do a deal with a P for now, we did a deal with a, a PLC, but. What was that? We So when I deal with JD, that's like a, a PLC. But okay. my experience is like some of the private equity firms that we worked with was it was about. Um, I mean, we got to the end. We kind of went through loads of different phases, and you get to the end, and then there's loads of like messing around with like price and stuff. But I'd probably, if I did it again, I'd probably be more careful about who I'd spend because it takes so much time. Like, if if you want to, if you want someone to buy your business, it's almost like untold hours of of conversations and work to get to that point of where they can actually submit an offer. So I'd probably be a bit more selective around because I what I would do is I kind of had this like. Don't leave a stone unturned approach. So if someone was interested in buying our business and they put in a good indicative offer, I would spend the time to really engage with them and get them to a point where they could put a final offer in. But really I probably should have been a bit more stringent. So um yeah, I'd probably be mindful of that a bit more in terms of like the amount of time I'm investing, because you've got to run the business at the same time. Like yeah. if you're going through a six month process, six months in a business, especially in e commerce, is like a long, long time. So I'd probably keep my eye on the business more and not take offers too seriously until it's much further down the line.
0: So so, so, but what can go wrong during these two, three months of due diligence? And how can you perceive whether the other party is trying to do a win-win or is trying to screw you on the deal? Mm. Um, What can go wrong? So I think,
1: I mean, the number one thing that goes wrong is trading. So, will have a budget set out but it should be submitted to the to the buyer for this year and next year and everything and if you say you're going to hit this number and you miss your budget by 20% during the process that's going to affect value so the number one thing that goes wrong is the business or the asset that's being sold is has some like issues during the process so yeah. I just purely focus on the business um, and then in terms of what can go wrong from a founder's perspective you just spend all this time with people and they just chop you at the end so like until the money's been handed over the deal's not done and i i mean it was 18 months right so i kind of knew what the asset was worth i knew what these offers were but i kind of just tried to pretend it wasn't happening until the very end because you don't until the money's in your bank you don't it's not been done and a lot of people want to especially with our business like a lot of people want to know how our business works so they can and no one's going to buy your business without knowing all the details so we have like information that we don't want to share with buyers or like how we run our business or how we do our social media strategy and all this stuff that's like integral to the business value. The buyer wants to know all that before they transact. So you have to really go through all that. And I think um, that's something to expect, but also not ideal, but part of the process.
0: Okay, so basically you have a 18 month long process to basically sell you, your company or uh, at least some shares but but it doesn't end there and that's something that people need to understand too is basically w- what are some examples not not even taking your example but like in general what are some some examples of terms that a, an entrepreneur can expect you know what, uh, what's the reality behind for example a headline saying okay this founder sold his company for say 100 million or 1 billion US dollar you know like what happens uh, How young are you locked uh, afterwards? How much money do you get up front? What do you even get? You get cash, you get stocks. Uh, 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 You know, people think, oh, this this guy uh, worked two years, one year sold uh, Instagram, made one billion. Mm -hmm. Or this guy worked five or 10 years and then he went to the beach. But it's not what happens. So -hmm. so, so what's the typical terms that someone who is selling a business can expect so people understand that Basically, the moment where probably you get to an agreement is, is just it's just another beginning, mm-hmm. and you're not done.
1: I think uh, I mean, this is one of the nice things about finances. I mean, it's not really true, but people say sometimes it's like an art, not a science, and it's, because there's so many different ways, which is it's what, what I like about finances. There's so many different ways that things can be done, and investing there's so many different ways that things can be done. So there's basically a clean sheet of paper, and then from that is what the deal looks like in the end. But in 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 theory um I mean we had we had loads of different like ways which deals were structured but ultimately I mean there is deals where even in e-commerce there's deals where a big company wants to buy a company and they pay 100% in cash but in reality what usually happens is it'll be if it's like if a majority it might be like a percent and then often there's like things to be hit so a very common thing is um if someone buys your business for x let's just pick a simple number like I don't know 10 million let's say just as to make it simple to work out so your business might be bought for 10 million but and it might be something like 50% in cash um 30% over the next 3 years for hitting certain targets and then 20% ongoing that's on a put call option which means you could sell the remaining shares in like 5 years time or something so and it happens with like i mean there's a lot of headline figures that come out i mean I don't know about the Instagram one that was massive I reckon that probably was just money because companies like Facebook they've got so much cash they just want to get it out the door so yeah but there's lots of different structures that happen Um, and but it's up to the it all comes down to what the asset is if the asset's super strong then you can kind of dictate what terms you want Mm. Um, and if it's not then it's, it's much much harder so I hear about all the different types of deals that are done but yeah, often when you see like hundred mil cash, there's often a lot of things that have gone around that. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Also, awesome. uh, so can you can you tell us about some of the biggest business challenges or toughest moments in herbust history?
1: I think um, something that which we, sh- we we actually discovered, but I actually went and spoke to a, I was on an e-commerce podcast a few weeks ago, and. They asked a similar question, but it was about like, how do you get from? He he says a lot of people seem to be able to get to like one million in sales, and and then they didn't know how to scale past that. So we didn't either, but we we found out a way, which was enabling uh, more sales channels and more uh, countries, basically. So like. If you can, if you can scale through, if you can scale in one country, like why can't you scale in like twenty? So like one thing that we did with Hairburst was we started off in the UK, um, and we found a system that works. But to be able to scale, we did France, Germany, Thailand, Vietnam, Italy, Spain, US, and it was about. But you actually have to do it. So that was a challenge in terms of like what I see a lot of companies do is they manage to scale in like one market. But again, it's like geographically arbitrage. We've spoke about this in the past, but like the guys who are at Rocket Internet who um, sold their first business because they saw eBay in the US yeah. and they made it in German and they yeah. sold it like 40 days later to eBay or whatever. Yeah. It was. And it's like, that's happening at all times all over the world. So social media boom, we did it in the UK. Why can't we do it in other countries? And I think a lot of businesses not do that, which is, it's geographical arbitrage, but it's also ways to scale is, is
0: multiple different markets. Um, Can you give some example, concrete example of where it just went completely wrong? I think you told me once about this example in one of the North African country, or uh, I don't know, like where basically you do some, you know, like some significant investment to start something there or channel or whatever and it just doesn't work at all. Yeah, like
1: I, it's a nail down a few. I mean, I feel like Especially, like, operating as, like, the CEO-type role. You're constantly just firefighting issues. So it's quite hard to, like, nail some down. But, I mean, we have, like, there's there's fake products coming out in China of, like, hair burst products all the time. Like, factories okay. just rip off the brand. It's, like, it's got... It's exactly, it looks like ours. It's not. It's just a counterfeit good. But that's, like, a massive issue for branded products. Like, huge. Like, we have... um it happened in, I think it was, which country was it? it happens in Vietnam. It happened in, in Spain. Like, people just buy fake hair bursts in Spain. Somehow it's ended up in Spain. They would just buy the fake hair burst. The products would be nowhere near as good, right? Because you've got a plastic bottle with our logo on it, which looks the same, but the actual shampoo and conditioner, which is like, we sell premium products. It's like a £25 shampoo and conditioner, so it costs a lot of money to make, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But this is just like shampoo from China that's got no active ingredients or anything in it, so... These things are coming over. They find themselves on eBay in the UK. Like we're having, and then customers try it and then leave a bad review or whatever or message to say, "Oh, we've had this product." Like, well, what's the batch code on bro It's actually not even—it's not even real. Like, trying to—you're trying to then <laughs> to go to have a legal case in China is like a non-starter. Like, mm. Apple can't sort that problem out, so we're not going to be able to sort it out. There's just endless amounts of issues, and I think you kind of get—I think I probably over the years got used to dealing with issues because you're always got bad news coming. And, like, I guess I can kind of, like, it's expected. Like, you walk in and it's like, well, what's the issue today? And you have to pick three and focus on those three issues. But, yeah, there's been examples of trying to launch in certain markets and it's not worked. And um, the counterfeit problem was, like, a big issue. Um, I think you kind of get used to, you kind of can, we'll come on to freedom, I'm sure, soon, but, like, even though, even though you might be able to come financially free, doesn't necessarily mean you're mentally free. So, like, I could go, like, on holiday somewhere. That's not gonna; these problems aren't gonna disappear. Yeah. Like, I've, I'm like, I've been 24 seven hair burst for like nine years. So, I'm not all of a sudden gonna. And during that period, I've been on, I've been to different places, but uh, I'm still like, I walk on the beach, I'm thinking about hair i I go to the gym, I'm thinking my hair bursts. Like, that doesn't leave you. And I think maybe that's partly why it's been super successful, but it also is, it's part of the territory, like, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, talking about just uh, the, all the issues and the, the fire and all these, these problems to solve, just reminds me when we were building our first business in London and basically every, mo- I mean, you're thinking about it all the time, but every Monday we would just get back to the office and there would be like a huge, a huge problem and be like fucking like this thing could have could have waited once until Tuesday but like every time and it's kind of funny to talk about it but it it's like a hammer every every month every time like an, a hammer boom again 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 and people really i think the the most underestimated side of like building a business or running a business is basically the mental health cost mm. and the, the 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 emotional roller coaster and and you might have all these, I mean, people who might see like the big wins and the, the money and all that stuff, but like what they don't see is like how much 99% of your time is just getting hammered with bad news and problems to solve and, and yet still being able to continue living like that basically. So how, how do you stay motivated when you just have issues all the time or you just learn to realize that mm-hmm. that's actually how it works? that's it
1: yeah I mean I would if I was to do it again I would definitely structure it in terms of like when I said before I didn't have any mentors I should have definitely I could have found some for sure like these are people like I do it now so I'm angel investment in in various different e-commerce businesses and if there's a big problem and they call me like I've I'll try and help right but I never I had my best friends in the business who we talk over problems with but it'd be quite good to know and have confidence that there's someone who's been there and done it within the business. And it's quite easy to find, like, there's so many investors out there. Like, I wasn't aware of this when I started, but point number one is that, how do you stay motivated? I think um, in terms of, like, getting through issues and stuff, um, I try to draw, like, confidence from... I think I had a lot of maybe inherent confidence just from, like, winning at sport and stuff when I was younger, maybe. I don't know, but I just kind of, like, faced with a problem. It's like kind of have that underlying confidence that I'll I'll get through it. Um, and ultimately, having, having the goal, which was one, to be financially free, which comes at a cost, which is a lot of hard work, mm. like in my early 20s. Um, and then after five years was another goal, which was to sell a large majority of, of the business um, to the right party. So I think those kind of things get you through having an end goal.
0: Okay. So completely related to that, like can you talk about the importance of basically resilience an entrepreneur and how you actually become numb to problems and to all the fuck ups that happen at some point
1: I think it always comes down to long term thinking again like my last answer like you have to have some kind of like goal insight um, where you can deal with like short term issues it probably is, it's probably it's the same with investing like you deal with like short term pain but you know and you have a long term vision and i think as long as you want that goal enough, it all comes down, back down to like how much you actually want, what you're actually spending your time doing, how much you actually enjoy it. Like if you enjoy something, you're 10 times more likely to continue doing it and it makes you more resilient. Like I loved doing hair bursts the majority of the time. So I was much more likely to continue and persevere through the issues. Um, I think if you enjoy it, that's super valuable. Um, and having a, a end goal, that end goal can change as you do doing it. Like for me, it was first to be financially free and then it became like much bigger than that. And then it became like the idea to exit and all this cool stuff. But you kind of have that view. I think if you don't have that view, you can kind of become, and I had this like problem phase when I was like, the age I was, was like 26, 27 where I was financially free um, and I could probably retire off my, like assets let's just say but you kind of like it was a uh, people often talk about like uh, like gold medal syndrome stuff when people sell their business like they work so hard for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years sell the business for the money and then you have the money and you go um what now what do i do mm-hmm. next or what do i do i kind of had that at 27 because i was like well i achieved my original goal i was financially free I could travel the world and go wherever I want. I had my own business. I didn't have anyone to tell me what to do or whatever. But then I kind of felt a bit lost. So it kind of went through that phase. I um, can't remember what the question was now, but I no, remember that, that period. Yeah,
0: so, I mean, maybe like what, what are, you said, I, I love to do hair Like, what are the things you enjoy to do the most in hair when your initial goal, the reason you started a business is I mean, there's different reasons to start a business. Often, like, you solve a problem or you have a mission. For you, it was more in the beginning. I want to get to this 40k a year, so I can basically move around a lot and I you know travel, uh, travel and work from anywhere. So, wh- so, so you, so, so the main mission in the beginning was not about uh, exactly what you were doing. So, what did you enjoy the most, basically, or how how, how did you learn to really enjoy what you were doing, like you know, just ju- just trying to understand what really kept you through going through all this pain, except financial freedom goal i
1: think I'm, I, I think i found it quite intellectually stimulating which is something that i've searched for all the time which mm-hmm. i didn't realize at the time but when faced with a problem like i quite enjoyed confronting it and overcoming it and i think everyone needs that in life like life isn't here to be like sit on the beach and do nothing like there's problems all the time my problems happen to be like daily hairbirth problems and that was what i would end up solving which in a big picture world is not a big issue at all, but for me in my life, it was quite good to get through that. Um, I think accountability, like I felt accountable to my best friends who are in the business, like my business partners, I felt accountable to the staff to give them like a good job and a good time and enjoy their time when those with us.
0: Okay. C- can you tell us about the various the various emotional states that you've been through during the, the entire hairbrush exp- experience?
1: So the best bit was at the start when I knew I didn't have to work for anybody else. That was like euphoria, <laughs> I would say. Like, there's nothing, that was just like insane. Like when it was everything was working and it was, we were like printing money and it was all, all good fun, you know. That was like the best, that was the best bit at the start. And then kind of like what I mentioned briefly earlier was I hit a point where I was financially free and didn't actually know what was next because you have the goal is like, right, okay, I want to work for myself, make enough money. Now what? Yeah. And I, I spent a time, in, I was in Australia actually for a few months and I was just like really trying to, had like the business was operating, we probably had 30 staff I'd say at the time, something like that. Um, everything was kind of being taken care of and it's like, well, this is great because business is growing. I'm still actively involved. I get to deal with like the bigger problems but what am I actually I do doing well now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a bit. Which is. Which is. I think it's true, in a lot of ways. Like you have to start to consider like big picture things when you have like your basic needs taken care of, like food, finance, bed, these kind of things. Um, and for me at the time, it was like passive income was like nailed at that point. What What am I now? What What am I going to really focus on? And it became like then the idea to do an exit of the business and. continue to progress with that and stuff but that was a real that that probably maybe a bit of a lonely time I would say that period for maybe a year because no one's gonna no one's gonna tell me what I enjoy to do (laughs) I mean no one's gonna say oh this is like I mean you can take examples from different people but kind of figure out what was next there um and I'd probably say the following two years probably like selling the business was so stressful it was like so self-consuming because it was like, I'd never done it before. Like, again, I do it different now, but that was like a really stressful period. So I don't know. Like, the start was definitely the most fun, I would say. Into a bit of loneliness in between like being a CEO, having to deal with all the problems yourself, not really having someone to turn to. And then, yeah, as it things got more like bigger and more corporate, it was I found that quite stressful, but maybe that was just my character. I don't know.
0: Okay. So people don't really understand the mental health costs that comes with building and running a business and especially how it affects relationships with friends, family, and girls. Do You want to elaborate a bit on that and yeah, what you think you did well, what you could probably have done better. You know, this basically trade-off between relationships and... I mean, I think there is this thing where we say... I think it's when you build a business, basically you need to choose between work, health or relationship and you need to pick two out of three. Mm. And so like, do you want to elaborate a bit on like basically your experience about relationships while building a business like that? Yeah, I think I think in anything, there has to be an element of sacrifice. And
1: unfortunately that's probably, I mean, for me, would I have liked to spend more time with family? Yes. Would I have liked to spend more time with friends? Yes. Would I have liked to spend more time on my health? yes but it was you kind of make that sacrifice I think I was always fairly good at continuously going to the gym because I kind of felt that was like integral to to my happiness I guess if I didn't go to the gym and stuff like that I always like doing sport as well Um, but you see that often in 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 business people like they kind of go through a stage of like the first bit it's like everyone focuses on wealth as like the number one priority and then when they get money it's like well then they focus on the health afterwards. It probably should be the other way around. But I do think that you have to have some element of like hard graft. And if eating a bit of shit food and not going to the gym in between makes people do that, then it's just an element of sacrifice. Um,
0: But yeah. Okay. How, how, How much do you reckon building a business from such a young age really helped you grow as a person? much faster than a person who would not go through
1: that. I think it it definitely does because you almost become like, at times, like at work, I feel like a parent, a parent because... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a dad, yeah. I mean, you've got like, I don't know, like I said now, I've got like 50 people. Like I'm not, by any means, the oldest member of staff. We've got people older than me and people younger than me and you kind of, you become the father figure in the business mm-hmm. in, in one way or another. So... I probably did grow up like really quick I think I was always fairly sensible compared to some of my friends anyway um, <laughs> as I was growing up but when I got to like uh, yeah when you're 21 faced with I don't think 21 probably 22 but maybe I'd like 10 11 staff everyone's up to you for an answer you kind of have to grow up quite quick so I'd say that's definitely developed me in in that side but then I probably wasn't developed in other areas like relationships for example or other parts of life which you don't you don't focus on as much because I mean even now like I'm so like, I don't know if it again if it's my personal or just if you're running a business in general but he's kind of that becomes your baby so I mean I'm 33 I don't have any kids yet it's probably because I've had this kid which is hair burst for 10 years that occupies everything and you kind of just stay so focused on that you know so but again it probably needs that to be successful in some ways
0: yeah absolutely talking about success, what does it take to start a profitable business? So, because maybe just one thing you know, there's a lot of businesses out there, but actually most of them are barely profitable, if profitable at all. So like basically what yeah, what does it take to start a profitable business that's actually generating cash and profit, which mm. at the end of the day, I mean, I think people understand it more and more now, but like a couple of years back, was never about, you know, profit and nothing. It was just about, I don't know, users, numbers, mm. growing great as quick as possible. And like, yeah, so, so, so what does it take?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it comes down to the, the business model. But again, I would argue the case that like, is, that, is profit the most important thing? I think as a, in terms of like what you're referring to, it's probably more like the tech or like, especially now like crypto type of business models where like growth is everything. Um, so I come from a different, not different generation, but like I wasn't developed enough to even consider launching something like that or even understanding that I was just trying to make enough money so I could travel, right? So, mm. I mean, I always, so in our little bubble, which is e-commerce, I was very um, look after costs first. So I've, I've said this thing a few times, but it was almost like, I always say to people like do a and l on yourself before you launch a business. So like a lot of people want to launch a business but maybe the reason is for money but then like are they like people again you just do it with staff like if I have a member of staff and they can look after themselves in their role and they can look after other people like if you want to launch a business you need to look after yourself first like what's your monthly income and what's your savings and like how do you spend your time how do you spend your money if you can manage that first you're then probably in a position to launch a business which then might have
0: more chance of being profitable and run it effectively absolutely so what do you think is the main difference between the millions of small businesses that do kind of okay-ish, but will always kind of struggle? And a business like yours that you guys started with like 4K and ended up selling to a huge public company like JD Group.
1: Um, so, go, yeah, A previous point about the scale is like, you have to be like, first identifying different scalable opportunities. So like for us, it was like different territories and like scaling horizontally as opposed to just vertically in one area Um, and being able to identify that. So obviously every industry is different, but we saw that social media was like booming for beauty brands, but if it's going to be in the UK, why is it not going to do it in France as well? So like horizontally scaling that way, which a lot of brands I don't see do. I met a guy recently who launched like a a trainer business and um, he was like saying to me, like. He didn't seem super happy about it, but he'd done like over a million in his first year. And I was like, this is fucking amazing, like well done. Um, And he was like, how do I go from like one to 10? And it's like, well, what are you doing now? Okay, you're selling, how many markets are you selling in like one? Okay, how do you acquire users, Facebook ads? Well, Facebook ads work in every country. So you just need to, you're probably like a a translation away from, you're probably like a, a French translator. Like you can probably pay by the hour just to get into France. Translate your ads into French. Or might it be Germany or it might be Italy or whatever this product that you have can probably sell into more than one market. So like scaling that way um, is probably the number one thing that I see. But you have to be bothered to do it. Like it's not a nice job. If you've got a running business that's making you like, maybe it's a lifestyle business it's making you enough money to live the life that you want, then great. But if you want more, then it's there. You probably just need to horizontally Grow as well as vertically.
0: Is is running a business really as cool as what most people think? And so, what I mean by that is, what's the reality of being an entrepreneur in sort of work-life balance? What because we talk about we talked about freedom, like you start a business for the freedom. But is, are you really as free as that? You just said yourself, I'm thinking about this twenty four seven. And so, what what do people need to understand before they start a you know, whether like a, a one-man a one freelance company what it, or, or, or a bigger company, like, again, like, it, it, first, is it as cool as what most people think? And are you as free as what people think? And what's so, even the definition of freedom in that case?
1: Yeah, so this is um, a bit of a tangent, but to, answer, to come back to your question in terms of like the freedom thing, so something that happened that I didn't anticipate after I sold... Um, majority share so I'm no longer the majority shareholder of, of Hairburst so I would assume that the stake that we saw in the business I would be that much less bothered about how the performance is but I'm like just as bothered now if not more bothered about how Hairburst performs even though I own much less share of it now than I used to Um, and that really confused me because it makes no logical sense like the more you own of a company in theory you should be that much bothered Mm. More bothered about how it performs, whereas now I'm almost like super bothered about how it's performing, um even though I own less of it. And it's just because I'm probably attached to it in some way, or I feel accountable to maybe other people and all these other things that are going on. But what that's resulted in is mentally I'm not free as I would expect to be after you've just exited a large mm. shareholding. So that's probably something to be expected. I don't know if that's just me or if that's like how it works in general, but. Yeah, how to, in terms of work-life balance, so what that's resulted in over like a 10-year period for me is there hasn't really been any balance. Um, is that required? Yes, no. I think you have to have, I think it's healthy to have some element of balance, but ultimately it is going to be a, a full-life thing for, for most people anyway. Um, and you see that often with most entrepreneurs, right? Everyone's working all, all different hours until they get to a point where maybe they can cool down a bit Um, because you often hear people talk about like meditation and all this kind of stuff but that generally comes after they've been successful yeah you know like it's me at 22 you probably couldn't tell me to do any of those things because I'm just not even speaking to you because I'm doing the thing you know I think that's quite common but there's definitely some balance in there but yeah with like balance I don't really believe in it especially in a startup
0: world yeah yeah How free would you say you are as a business owner versus an employee status? And like freedom is like a a freedom of time, freedom of mind. Uh, You know, like often you hear ex-employees who start businesses who said, basically I left my nine to five to become free, but I'm working nine from eight to 12. Mm -hmm. You know, so like what do people need to understand? What are basically the benefits of having your own business? which are what people think is the only thing they think of when they start a business, but what are also the other kind of drawdowns or things that you don't necessarily realize before launching the business, but then you're like, fuck, actually, had I known, you know, because for example, for example, me, so many times I was like, I mean, I was kind of suffering and I was like, people think it's awesome to have a business, but like you're 24-7 thinking about it like anytime, like, Sometimes you can not even connect with friends because you're thinking about your business. Or you were with your girlfriend, whatever, having a dinner, or I don't know, even in bed or whatever, and you think about your fucking business, and you can't connect. And for someone else, it's really bad because, like, they're like, "Okay, what, what the hell is going on?" And yeah. it's not fun to be with someone who is like all the time on on, on another planet. And and I, quite a few times, I was just thinking, man, like, I wish, I wish I just had a normal job where. I'm done. I'm done. I'm going on my weekend. I can enjoy my weekend. I'm going on holidays for one or two weeks. I'm going on holidays. I'm leaving the office. I'm done until tomorrow. Especially when you deal with... I mean, for us it was more B2B, but you deal with people who are like that. So basically, they don't care if it's done tomorrow or in two weeks. Whereas you care because if you don't get the thing done, you don't have the money and you don't have the cash mm-hmm. and then you die, basically. So like, what's the... Again, like, the good and the bad of, like... Yeah. What should people who are employees and just complaining about their life all the time know about being on the other side, you know?
1: Yeah, I think whether you look at it both ways, like, the grass is always greener. So that's, like, a... I mean, we could talk about that for ages, but that's across, like, so many different things I've seen. Like, I fully believe that's always the case, Um, which is something that people need to not see. But I think... So for me, what caught me off guard is the mental stuff. So for, like physically, I was free, right? Because I could travel and do these things and I could still do that now really. But the mental side is is a different game. And I think maybe some people want that and some people don't. I mean, for me, it was always a case that, I mean, I, I would never, I'd always struggle to be an employer. I don't think I could ever do that again. I'd always be like a, a business owner and, and do that. Um, I think... Some people maybe try. I think a lot of people just need to try things for themselves. Like if you if you're always wanting to run a business, then try it. I think you need to have at least six months runways and savings to be able to try something. Um, mentally, it probably can be exhausting. Um, but if, if people are conscious of that they probably should just try it, and if it doesn't work out for them, then they could be happy doing what they were doing before. Yeah. Um, but for me, yeah, I'd always want some skin in the game and be and be running it for sure.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. Let's talk about money talks and happiness. So how does your life change the day you wake up with tens of millions in your bank account?
1: Um, so for me, it was... Nothing actually changed at all, to be honest. Like if I talk about the actual day that happened, like it was the most uneventful thing ever, right? Because you... But by that point, I already had the, had the... I had that middle stage of what everyone talks about, like the day you sell your business, everyone celebrates. That was actually like a slow burning process because I like banked money. So yeah. I had a few million put away in passive funds well before we did the deal. So I kind of had all that and went through that like money thing for like yeah. slowly, you know. Um, so nothing happened um, on that day. It was super, it was like a relief for the thing to be over because we've done this 18 month thing that finally finished and we planned to sell the business. we had done it. That was like, that was great. Um, but in reality, what's actually happening is yes, you sell and you get money, but what I've, so I've basically changed an asset, which is like shares in Hairburst for cash. And cash is. Which is even worse. <laughs> Like cash is, I mean, now at the minute, like, don't want to go into politics, but cashing great. So then you have to reallocate that. So what you're actually doing is you're swapping hairbrush shares for shares in a like in an index fund or whatever. Mm. So you are kind of just moving things around. Um, whereas a lot of people are thinking like, oh, if I had like, I don't know, One ten million, million I, would, 10 I million. would, I would, I would buy this, but and it would be done, yeah, yeah, but. What? Like, what are you going to buy? What's actually going to change? Nothing's actually going to change. So it's more of, like, yeah. I mean, I know some people have sold businesses for, like, yeah, 10, 15 million or whatever, and 10 years later it's gone because they bought, like, crazy shit, went to Vegas and spent, like, all this money and private planes and boats, and and then all of a sudden it, it's gone. So I would never be like that. Like I said before, I had, like, a lot of money saved before we did the deal, and it was always – to generate a passive income, to spend time doing what I wanted to do. But yeah, nothing changed. Just moved. It's like still moving assets around, really.
0: Yeah, which is, it's almost a bit depressing to think about it. Like nothing has changed, but like what can you tell about, I mean, first, like for example, when you made your first million, like how did it, how did you feel, you know? And by, by that, I mean more, most of the people think, that when they're going to make their first million, their life going to change, or they're going to be happy. When are going to make their first 5 million or 10, or reach a number, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case. Like, nothing changes. I mean, you might be, if you reach your kind of number, and you understand this passive income thing, it's another game, you might be, like, as we said before, kind of less stressed out, but, but you still need to figure out what's going to make you happy, and the money will never be the one that's, thing that's going to make you yeah. happy. So, so basically what can you tell people about how uh, first have you I don't know read or studied the f- why are people so focused on those kind of numbers and second have you also read or researched and kind of mixed with your own experience on why basically this is not the thing that's going to make you happy i mean the world is
1: the world is built around people wanting these things like everywhere you go it's commercials as soon as you're on instagram like you're seeing like all this shit all the time and like you walk down the street and there's like buy this for this or this sale or whatever you know it's like it's kind of how the economy works in a lot of ways which is quite sad but the way I used to look at money is it was always I mean don't get me wrong like if you go from like 20k salary I was on 16k when I was at phones for you so you go from that to 50 50 to 100k a year, and like these increments are massive, mm. like huge. Because you go from being able to save money, being able to like look forward to like you can see your numbers going up, you can see the growth coming. You can, as long as you, but, so the first million is like amazing because you can go, Well, if I put a million in an index fund and get seven percent, yeah, make 70k a year, and forget like crypto stuff where you can get like 15 20%, whatever. Like, if you can get like 70k a year which is a lot of money to spend. And if you're spending on like like crazy stuff, then it's obviously not enough. But 70K, you can live a pretty fulfilled life on 70K, especially if it's passive, you know? So that is big. S- anything after that starts to become much less meaningful. And then when you go to tens of millions, it's literally just assets, like I said, moving around. Yeah. Um, like even if you want like boats and planes and stuff, you better have rent them anyway because they're going to go down in value. So like owning a plane is... Pretty pointless. Um, so if you want to do that, then it's uh, probably maybe not the best place to allocate cash. I don't know. Yeah, that's actually
0: one of the key points in the, in the Money Master the Game book where he talks about what's your number. So basically, what is the amount of net worth or wealth that you need to accumulate so that you can live off just the passive income yep. at different levels of life? So just pay your rent or pay for your whole life or pay for a much more luxury, luxurious life, which depending on where you live and what kind of stuff you want to do. And, and one of the examples is about this couple that think that they need 10, 10 million to be able to, to live a pretty lavish lifestyle with like jets and all that stuff. And then he just gets to that number that actually 3 million would be enough. If you think about renting the plane instead of buying it and all that stuff basically, so you always think you need more than you actually need. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's
1: quite a common thing in uh, e-commerce where, um, I mean, there's been a few exits that have been like really big in, in e-commerce brands and a lot of guys have run e-commerce brands are quite young, right? So it, And it's all the Instagram community everything and like you always hear like it's 100 mil exits and things like that, but yeah. it's realistic like how much do you actually need? And you can actually figure it out and it's well worth doing because you can soon realize that like I know I'm still talking big numbers, but like a few million, like for example, 10 million in, a, in an index fund at 7% a year, like right now again, inflation and all that is not great, but hopefully everything sorts itself out and we get back to normality in, in some ways. 7% on 10 million is like 700K a year. <laughs> like
0: like, like more than 50K a month. Like what, what the hell is going to spend that? that? Yeah. yeah.
1: What about, what about if you go getting 15%? Yeah. Or like 20%. Yeah. It's like one, two million a year in... in Passive by what the hell? What that's, the hell are you going to do with that, you know?
0: It's exactly the same thing in crypto. Like you have these these, these kind of these people who just ask, oh yeah, what's financial freedom for you? And you have these guys saying 50 million or 100 million. And then you're like, what the hell? Like if you have 50 million at, let's say 10% in table coins or 20, that's like five to 10 million a year. What are you going to do with that? Like <laughs> really? And people yeah. just, I think the problem is like, you just compare yourself to your peers yeah, and and also you ov- always overestimate, often by a long shot, what other people have. Mm-hmm. You just think, oh, this person is super successful, like they have massive socials or whatever. They're just whatever, but it, it's it's very often much less mm-hmm. of the case, basically. The- like if
1: anyone if anyone's still listening and they've are thinking about like how much money they need, I'd suggest going on the internet, going on a compound calculator, putting in like an achievable percentage. I mean it's all gone in the gone into the sky now because of crypto, but it's like if you saved like two K a month at ten percent interest over fifty years or whatever, you end up with like I'm not gonna say a number now and it's gonna be wrong, but it's amazing how compound interest works. So yeah is, basically is what I'm trying to the say.
0: typical example is kind of I always tell people if you're let's say twenty five, because twenty you're probably too young to start thinking about that a few people do 25 people started to work already and people of our generation are more and more open to all that stuff so let's say 25 i think is like if you can save three to four hundred bucks a month and put them into the s&p 500 that gives you eight percent or seven percent annualized and you do it for 25 or 30 years you're gonna be a millionaire Mm. mathematically you will Mm. and like I mean, it depends the country, of course, but like in most kind of developed countries, uh, people can save two or 300 bucks a month. Like mm-hmm. literally like it's, it's what uh, 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 one or two nights out that you just put in the beginning when you receive a salary directly into an index fund or Bitcoin or ETH. Might talk about that later. And that's just compounding over time. And, and, and the, the, the entire thing about just calculating what do I need per month, depending on where I live, being pretty humble about it. Okay, if I, if I live in uh, Singapore or London, like 2000 US dollar a month might be difficult. Or in Dubai, if I have a family, but like if I go to, I can move anywhere basically. And so then I just multiply this amount monthly into yearly by 12. And then basically I can divide by my expected return, which is let's say seven, 8% depending. And then I get this, basically what's my number? And then I work towards it. Mm-hmm. By using a calculator, component calculator and seeing, okay, if I invest more every month or if I get a better rate of return, I'm gonna get to that number faster and basically I'm gonna be done after that. I think it all comes down to um which is like
1: all about mindset before as people go through that stage, like the only thing that's stopping that is through social games, which is like they're spending money not for themselves and they're not investing in themselves, they're investing in other people's perceptions of themselves. Which yeah. is like if you like it's so common right and it's also like it's probably changing more now because there's so much more information out there but if you earn 40k you spend 40k if you earn 80k you spend 80k especially in places like London like if people are on these 150k salaries they won't have anything left afterwards because they buy in bags and watches and da 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 before you know it there's there's no they're just
0: there's no plan they're growing with their salary Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah and it's for what though like for me like if you again like investing in material objects you're investing in that like maybe maybe you really like that but i just look at a lot of things which is quite sad but if you go okay this watch or whatever is that better there or is it better in a fund for the next 30 years and what is that going to mean you know like a 10k watch or a 20k watch like if you put that in a fund now 30 years time it's going to be worth exponentially more i mean watches are going up really fast now anyway but yeah, <laughs> yeah for the next 30 years it's not going to continue like this but yeah and that's just Getting that mindset of and a relationship with money, like a, a positive relationship with money. Yeah, it's quite important.
0: Absolutely. So you said basically you've retired basically on paper when you're 25, 6, 7, mm. 27. So basically what we're talking about now is exactly principle of investing and building wealth. Can you tell us how you developed your investing skills and how do you even how did you even get into the idea of I need to invest? Because the the main issue is, in in my case, it was setting up a pension fund for our first company, for employees and for ourselves because we're employees of the business and thinking what's the best pension scheme. And then you all started from there. And then I discovered by reading just a few books, Money Master the Game, Unshakable, both by Tony Robbins. One was called uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I mean, they all say the same basically. Basically, it's you invest yourself, you do it yourself, you invest in low-cost, diversified, index funds, and you never sell, basically. And you do you invest every month. And then I was like, oh, that's okay. I need to find a pension fund that lets me invest myself and the employees themselves into this fund. So I need to have the control over what I invest in. And it needs to be low-cost because if you understand compounded interest, you need to understand that the costs or the fees compound in time and so, if I have some hidden cost because a banker or an asset manager is taking care of my money, and they kind of charge hidden fees or whatever, they need to pay themselves all this money they take from you for their own life, which is fair because they need to have a life, is actually not compounding in your favor. It's kind of compounding against you, and then a difference of one or two or three percent in the performance means that in thirty years instead of having one million or two million, I have half of that. Mm. 500K or whatever, 200K or 300K, depending on how much I invested. And so which means that I either cannot retire or either I could have retired much earlier if I knew about all that stuff and I would just had the right setup in the beginning or I'm just going to have to retire but take the risk of running out of money. So what, for you, what made you understand all this stuff or get more interested into this stuff and really wanted to kind of sharpen your investing skills?
1: I think... Um like I always, again, like I always went through the travel lifestyle and stuff and it was all about like passive income, that kind of conversation. I think I was, yeah, let's say I was 25, 26 and by this point I was making like really, really good money. Um, and I didn't, I can't actually remember the first investment book I read, but I was always like interested. I mean, it probably, probably came from Google to be honest. Like I always hear like, oh, the rich get richer or mm. like all these different things that you hear. And I was like, why? Like, why does this happen? Why does that happen? And uh, and then I started to get onto, I was really big on Warren Buffett for a while, trying to understand like, so he's he compounded like 20% a year. And like, I just, I kind of just, don't know. I think I was always worried that I kind of went through a phase of like, make enough money to be free. right? Like then you go, okay, how do you keep that? Like, how do you continue to do that? Like how do I make sure when I'm like 50 or 60 this is going to continue to like fund me and I was always yes. when my first business was working I was always so scared of like get it and then because one thing when you don't have it you want to get it and when you have it you don't want to lose it so you kind of have like all these different anxieties that go on like first of all you don't have it so you really want to get it and then you get it and you're like oh what can I do to not have to worry about money again and I found them, found myself looking at different investment stuff, and then I just went through all the different books that you you've mentioned and, and many more, and it was quite apparent that yeah, you have to have money in markets, you have to invest in cashy shit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I think it was probably it probably came out of paranoia is where it came from okay. of not of not having it.
0: Okay, and so so you said cashy shit, you have to invest. That's something super important because like when I talk to people today and kind of like trying to help them about like. The, 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 develop these skills of investing and what works and what has been proven to work most of them they ask me but Kevin if you tell me to invest a certain amount every month for the rest of my life when do I sell? Like I want to be able to enjoy I want or, or what am I doing all this stuff just for my kids for a better life but I'm never going to be able to, 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 to enjoy it and I was while doing all that stuff I was thinking the same I was like when the hell is it going to I mean, what's even the point? Like, I'm suffering all, all this time for what? And and so now that you said cash is shit, basically, like, it, c- can, you, it, can you explain the concept of, and probably t- it took me years to get there, like to understand like that you basically never sell. Like, as you said, it's a transfer from one asset to another. Yeah. And to, to, to understand what basically can store value in time but the things that can store value in time are, by definition, volatile. They're going to change in value. Hmm. And so what's the kind of mindset that people need to understand about when they ask you, when do I sell?
1: So I think, so going back like a layer below, so when people say, when do I get to sell? So they have a misconce- misconceived belief that when they do sell and they get the cash, that they're going to be able to buy these things and that's going to be a good, better result when it's actually not. Like... Again, like everyone's an individual case, but for me, like when, when we sold our business and we got cash, I haven't bought a single thing. I keep, I've said this before, but like the only thing I bought within like two months of selling was like a new Apple watch strap. That was like, it even fit my watch. It was like seven pounds of Amazon. Cause somebody asked me on another podcast and they're like, what did you buy? And like, I'm not like, I mean, I'm not like a saint. like don't get me wrong, like when I was 26 or 27, <laughs> I bought like a Lambo and like, <laughs> I bought like watches in the past, and I've done that kind of stuff. But fortunately, what that basically taught me was it's all bullshit.
0: What, yeah, what, what did you learn about buying a Lambo when you were twenty seven years old?
1: So, well, it's just. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like like on the day I got it, I had loads of fun, right? But I've kind of gone through that now, I and mean, then you're never gonna I'm, you're never gonna be able to sit and say, "Don't do that." like, my brother's here today. I bet he would probably do the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you, people see it. Grass is always greener. Oh, they've got that. I want that. Have it. Oh, it doesn't actually mean anything. Right. And then you, you kind of find yourself in the state where I'm in now, where you get paid all this money and I don't buy anything because it's actually meaningless. I'd like, I'm much rather, like, I feel better doing exercise. I feel better yeah. having a good golf round or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, it's, it's so, it's, but it's just, so it's people's relationship with money and attached and misheld beliefs that those things are good when they are it's nice to do right but it's not you wouldn't no way would you ever sacrifice like not having to work or like having passive income that makes you sleep at night like great because you know that every day you make a few k or whatever it is on just on funds you know so Mm -hmm. um what would i say to people that probably that kind of that kind of stuff is that is
0: that what was the is that answer the question uh, no. <laughs> I just tried to I just to remember the question actually but yeah but I, think, I no I think it's good why, because why we're not, talking sir? about like what the most important stuff I, the the most important thing is why sell ever, why ever sell? yeah
1: and then I think it's mentioned about like the volatility of any asset yeah. but cash goes like this yeah and then assets go like this
0: yeah but <laughs> so on so average to, yeah they go up versus cash because money so. is being printed yeah so like so you don't want cash, basically. You don't want cash. I think. But so, so, so maybe just so maybe uh, maybe as a kind of summary before you continue, these people who ask when do I sell, basically, you don't sell, and you continue to invest and to reinvest the dividend and the interest and all that stuff to compound your wealth until it grows big enough so that you can live off the passive income, even despite the volatility meaning your portfolio might grow to, I don't know, 1 million, but with the volatility, because market move up and down, it might go down to, let's say, 500K. If you earn, let's say, 10%, at 500K, you still have 50K a year. So is 50K a year enough for you to stop completely working? If not, you continue to work. Mm -hmm. But maybe you work half-time, or you find something that you love more that gives you less money. You need to be always very flexible and understand that it takes time, but that also... You're not going to sell because if you're going to sell, it's what do I sell into? And if you think that selling into cash is the thing that makes sense, you probably need to educate yourself much more about the evolution of cash purchasing power, which basically I think the average lifespan of a fiat currency, so dollar, pound and all that is, is about 27 years. So most of them, they go to zero mm-hmm. in, within 27 years. And the ones that are the most successful, like the dollar or the Swiss franc or the pound or the euro, Probably down ninety nine percent in the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, like, is it something that if you are building all this wealth again, like it's not going to last if you just have cash?
1: Yeah, it's not even a choice. It's not even a choice. It, exactly. It a choice? Um, I mean,
0: yeah, it, I, everything has to
1: move into assets. But I do, I do think again, like going back to basics, like the mindset of cash is what is causing a lot of the problems, which is all based on how the economy is set up with advertising and everything else, like. I mean, it's for, it's for, you, and then you're never going to be able to change people's opinions of that. People going if to, if someone wakes up tomorrow with a million pounds and they didn't have any before, then people are probably going to buy a nice car. Like, that's the reality of it. But in terms of like a lifetime's earnings, because I know we're talking about things like watches and cars, and a lot of these things are like crazy for people to think about, right? But if you think of your money over a whole lifetime, because some people might get, like that sort of money at a young age, people might get it when they're first 50 or 60 or whatever and everyone goes through the same emotional stages but I think just keeping that bit to a minimum like, okay, people need to buy a nice car and buy a nice watch and get like whatever and go on these crazy nights or whatever and then it's done. But you could maybe that might even be a waste of like 100k and then just have it at that. If, if people are going like well beyond that, then it's probably more of a mental challenge that people need to approach. But for me, it was, yeah, it was fairly easy.
0: Okay, awesome. So what are the most important things that millennials and Gen Z should know about investing to build wealth and reach financial freedom early?
1: I think there's a famous quote, um, probably Warren Buffett or somebody, but it was something like, start early, the key to being wealthy is starting early and living long or something. Yeah. It, have you read that one? Was it Charlie Munger or someone like that? And I think that I Which
0: think basically it, means... That in investing time is your biggest... Uh, so start early. Yes, yeah, it's basically your biggest... I mean, time is on your side, basically. Yeah. And the earlier you start, the more you can compound your wealth. And because compounding is basically exponential, much more in the end, mm-hmm. you want to start as early as possible.
1: So I think that's probably number one. Number two is like, again, it comes down to mindset, but and it, I mean, the world's literally... People are fighting against it now. So like, like I don't use TikTok, but I can tell it's addictive as hell. Like <laughs> you, can, you can't you can learn how to build a business off TikTok, probably number two. Like you see so much information out there, but like long form content, podcasts, books, these sort of things are like really important for like gaining deep understanding into things. Um, I mean, get rich quick is like, I, I don't know how long this is, it just seems to get exponentially bigger every year. Like you'd assume now that the amount of information out there that people would not buy into this stuff, but they, they do. And there's always a new way to do that. So it's like long-term thinking.
0: Um, start so you're saying really. that anything that is a get-rich-quick scheme or, or any kind of uh, courses or online thing where you can learn how to become rich quickly or how to automate passive income or basically a scam yeah, yeah and I, and it, but it's the but people just fall for it all the time and mm. thanks to that the people who build this stuff actually make money mm. yeah yeah i mean that's 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 true but it's the classic uh yeah classic online marketing thing where basically the person sells you sells you a lifestyle uh, uh, i don't know building uh, an, an amazon business or whatever a consulting business on facebook whatever and they sell you how to get acquire all these clients, but the reason they themselves make their money is not because they made it, it's because you're buying a course from, from them and, and selling these courses online is very scalable. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem with those things is people actually want to believe it though. So that's why they buy into
1: it because one, you've got someone telling you it. Two, that person actually wants to believe it. So you've got all these things people are playing against and then you've got like, but I mean, I, I do... What's interesting with Gen Z is like, so for example, just taking an example, like in the beauty industry. So, I mean, us millennials and like, like other generations, like they would just, they believe the media and they would just buy products without looking too deep into it. Like Gen Z in the beauty industry, they will want to know every ingredient in every product and they understand the different parts and they don't want to buy shit basically and they know what's good and what's bad. I'd like to think that, the amount of information that's out there, there's kind of two different stages. One is like everyone's inundated with so much information they don't know what to do. But the second thing is people start to learn how the media works and how mm. like, you can't believe everything you read. Mm. You have to second guess everything. There's always a second opinion or third opinion. And I mean, social media, social media did enable that. That's now changing a bit because things are getting a bit strange. But I'd like to think that that's, how things will progress where you do take into consideration various different sources rather than just believing like one thing um so that's something to if you don't think like that I would probably that's probably a good way to go Is taking various different opinions on a certain subject um and i can guarantee if you're going to buy into a get rich quick scheme if you type that person's name in and they go onto the website it's going to be amazing but i can guarantee there's probably a youtube video on that particular person that says it's not as good as it is, and here's the evidence why. I mean, there's loads of YouTube videos out there now. There's a one, a channel called uh, it's called Coffeezilla. Yeah. You
0: seen that? It's awesome. He just. <laughs> I was, I just was thinking, cause thinking cause about I, him when you were talking about. this probably a channel somewhere, and that's going to basically shit on you. Like I was thinking about him. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean I, again, Coffeezilla. Yeah, it's awesome.
1: I mean, that's that's a particular one that's quite good that I've I've watched. But I mean, it, it's still like th- this the whole scammy like TikTok thing, like the amount of coins that's been pumped through influences like insane. Like they're all now getting into trouble and there's been law cases and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know. So the overall message from that is, um, yeah, just focus on the core principles of like long-term thinking, deep information, um, into building wealth rather than all this noise, which inevitably is going to be in your face because as soon as you go on to TikTok or Instagram, it's
0: all there. Mm. But you just have to. Which applies to, it applies to everything building a, a business, investing, building relationships with people, and in, in investing in normal um, assets, but also in crypto. People think they can make so much money in two or three days or in three weeks because, I mean, probably we're all these kind of gambling addicts. And so, like, mm. we have this appeal when we see this these people like basically shilling the hell out of, of a coin or just saying, oh yeah, you need to buy that or, without actually knowing, or maybe you even know that they're being paid behind or paying the, but you just want to, as, as I said before with the, with the um, online courses, you really want to believe it. And I, I don't know where this comes from, but actually if you're gonna be successful in investing, especially in crypto, because in crypto you have much more of this pump and dump stuff is by restraining yourself from buying this shit when everybody's screaming about it, basically. Mm. And that's when you're going to know that you're on the right path. And But it's very difficult to do because we all kind of, I fell for it so many times. I think nature. you just fall for it and you just lose all your money every time. And if you're not too stupid, you just realize, oh, I've lost my money five times by buying all this shit that everybody's screaming about. All these influencers are talking about that stuff. Actually, uh, maybe I should maybe if I want to not lose all my money, I should just stop listening to all these idiots mm. who make much more money from their channel than from the actual thing itself. Mm-hmm. And and then you can apply, th- if you think even deeper, I mean, we're just completely going off, but anyway, you can apply this to any, anything in life because like, okay. like for investing, like you go to a financial advisor, you're listening to someone to advise you for your to retirement or build retirement, but they're that not retired. Yeah. <laughs> they're not retired. Or you might go to, I don't know, a doctor because you have cancer, but like, would you rather go to someone who healed their own, ca- cured their cancer without being a doctor? Or would you go to a doctor? Um, probably in that case, you go to both. Like, But there's so many things that just don't make any sense. People just basically selling you things that they, they just didn't have achieved themselves. And so I think like the biggest the, the biggest thing that people should really think about is is this person actually trying to make money or not If they're, I mean the best example for that is Naval Naval Ravikant he's just saying like go listen to my podcast three hours and a half about how to build wealth and be happy and all that stuff I'm never he says I'm never gonna I'm never gonna charge anything because people who charge they haven't people who need to charge you for for an advice, it means they don't have the money. They haven't done it. They haven't made it. If they've made it, why would they even charge you? But everybody does that. And so, and even thinking even further, I'm I'm struggling to, to understand, I don't know, like, I don't want to give names, but like all these super famous people who now are selling online courses, like, why do they do that? I don't understand. Like, is this greed? Is this, like, why? Like, you have the wealth or maybe you have the the social capital, but you don't have the actual wealth. I don't know, you know? But I mean, I'm going to give you just one example. This, this, this guy, um, but there's so many. Uh, uh, I don't know, like, for example, Jordan Peterson. Like, I have just these ads all the time for his course. And like, why do you do that? If you were like multi-millionaire or like, why do you do that? Just do this for free. Like, you know, help people out. And I mean, I really like him. I hope that's not true. I mean, I don't know, but like, I I don't really know what he's doing, to be honest. Yeah. But, so I I just see him all the time. And I'm like, why is this guy selling something? Like some, some people might say, ah, if you don't charge for it, people will not take you as seriously. But I don't understand the principle of, if you've made, if you've made it, why would you ever charge for whatever you Mm -hmm. do if you don't need it, you know? You know, what's really sad as well is,
1: um, we spoke about, about money must the game like that was like a life-changing book for me and that was by tony robbins and as i've got older i'm like how is he why is he charging like 10k for these courses that like change people's lives and i'm like this is like like i love like when i hear tony robbins speak i feel like amazing <laughs> like he's yeah. like we're talking about a motivational speaker he is the original motivational speaker and he's written his books about money and he's positively changed my life right so you could probably argue that it's worth 10k it's probably yeah. worth more, low more than 10k, right? Yeah, but, but if he's worth it,
0: 500 million, why do you? But mean? it
1: irks me a little bit that he does charge that because there's people, I've just seen that there's a documentary as well, uh, I'm not your gear or something like that. But like these people go on to Netflix. these courses, yeah. Yeah, 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 But people go to these things and their whole life is changed, like people are crying in the audience, yeah, like, yeah. but it's 10k, like, it's like 10k is a lot of money for people to spend it on. Yeah, you're pressing this. out
0: most of the people who can't afford it, but like you probably, probably need it the need most. It need yeah. the most ex- and that's i mean we'll continue like the but that's something I just don't understand like if you've made it and you're so rich or wealthy or whatever, and you have all this kind of knowledge at some point like if if we talk about happiness and the the, the thing that doesn't make you happy is actually this thing that we call spirituality, which is thinking higher than yourself, i mean okay, you might say oh, I need some to 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 build a better production or something i need some people around me so i need to pay them but again like the 10k thing is just completely unjustified if you're trying to make the world a better place absolutely Mm. (laughs) it makes no sense (laughs) Uh, okay so okay cool um so basically kind of linked to that first what's enough and is there such thing as enough money and of course you're going to depend on the people but like if, again again tony robbins in all his books he's preaching like the, the 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 financial freedom but then he talks about the happiness and he's talking about these guys who are multi-billionaire and who's never going to be happy mm-hmm. so what's enough um is there such thing as enough oh, 100
1: yeah so for me
0: it's like
1: I don't think I'll spend more than, bear in mind, my, I literally do whatever I want, really. And I don't think I'll spend, mm. like bear in mind what I've just gone through and like what I've done in my 20s to get to this position in life, Like I probably won't spend more than 100k this year, I don't think.
0: Yeah.
1: Bear in mind my passive income's in like the hundreds of thousands. Well, more more like millions now every year. Yeah. And, and, so uh, <laughs> and, and then I don't, and that's not because but I know people have burn rates every year of like five, six hundred, seven hundred K every year. But then what? where I see that going is just like shit. Yeah. So, enough, like, I guess the question is enough to be happy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, basic needs are covered. Yeah. You can travel anywhere in the world whenever you want, business class. Like,
0: you have better experiences basically but you yeah. can't have more than better experiences
1: there's, there's no exponential growth after that for me like really like there really isn't and so if you what's enough i mean that but then that and again it's do you know i mean like you think about the whole world like that amount of money per year is like in the top not 000001% cuz you you think about like people in business and you think about people in like all the different countries all over the world, and I mean, I don't know what I can, I can imagine the top, the top one percent is probably like forty k or something. If you think about the whole world, you know, just think how lucky we are. First of all, to even be talking about this subject. Second thing is, that's definitely enough. And if that's not not enough, then you're probably trying to, you're probably trying to fulfill a other issue that's not actually related to money at all. And it yeah. might be an insecurity. It might be Absolutely. a misheld belief around someone else's opinion or maybe you're hurt about something that's happened in the past and it, you know, it, then it comes into all that extra stuff.
0: Or the circle of people you hang out with and yeah. we're just like yeah. doing better on paper. Which it is, becomes a competition, which, which is again is, back to the unhealthy yeah. mindset of like comparing yourself yeah. to others.
1: I like enough, like you're, there's another quote as well I keep forgetting them but it's like um you can almost like people do get to a position where they can like alleviate all wants. so enough is actually like nothing but that is possible to get to that mindset where like like I like to fly business class when I fly because I have a bit of a bad back I don't like sitting down for a long period of time but that's I could remove that my, I could remove that from my mindset, and I could just fly economy everywhere. yeah You know, like it's the same with everything. Like, you it's more about enough is a question around someone's mindset as opposed to like an actual number. It's just that that's the number that I've got to. And I think in the context of this podcast, it's very achievable with like e-commerce, crypto, and all these other things that we've discussed. Mm. So I've, I feel like a bit of a dick saying that because it is a lot of money for a lot of people, right? But in the context of what we're talking about, it's probably a smaller amount than what people would say. Yeah, yeah, is what I'm trying to get at. And
0: when you say like enough, sometimes it's just nothing. Like I had this uh, guest on, who's called Loic Lummer, who basically is a big uh, web one, web two entrepreneur and early investor in LinkedIn and and built like massive businesses. And basically he, he just said at some point, I just realized most of my friends, they never had enough. And he owns a private jet and all that stuff. I was like, but I was, not, I was not happy or I was not getting happier. I was like, that's not it. So what he said is, he just, he's just going four months every year to the Amazon forest, living with tribes. And there, <laughs> enough is nothing. And he's just saying like, Somet- I, we have nothing. And I'm so happy there. It's just a question of cont- perspectives and context. And sometimes he goes to the next level. He says, during four days, I'm not going to eat anything mm-hmm. and I'm not going to drink anything. So I have no water and no food for four days. And, like, I mean, you trip out and all that stuff, but, like, he's just saying, like, you just, just all about perspective and you're just, like, escaping this bubble of, like, bullshit, basically. Mm. And but in that case, enough is basically nothing. Mm.
1: The, main, the main word that keeps me to mind when we're talking about it is, is just perspective. Yeah. It's perspective. And I think there's also another thing, which is, um, like, a common thing, which is, like, practicing poverty, which is kind of what he's doing there. And I did by accident, um, once when I was in Bali because I'm an investor in an English school there so I like help fund various different things there and sometimes when I go over they offer me to stay and I'd rather stay in a nice hotel that's like 30 miles away Um, but there's a few times I have done it and I've stayed in like these huts in in Lombok Mm. and uh, the first time I did it I didn't realise what I was getting myself in for but you kind of like they don't sit on chairs they just sit on the floor and they just use their hands to eat so, like, within, like, two minutes, my back's, like, killing me. I'm, like, I can't, like, focus or anything, but you kind of get used to that. And then you appreciate a chair. Yeah. Like, how stupid is that, right? <laughs> and then, I remember um, when I slept, I had a uh, – they brought through, like, what I was going to sleep on, and it was just a, a mattress cover, Man United mattress cover, but there's no mattress in it. So, we just laid on the floor, and I'm, like, there, and I got eaten by ants, like, all night. And I hardly, And then, like, the next night, I slept like a baby, and it was, like, oh, my God, like a bed, you know,
0: that's crazy, yeah.
1: And I think, yeah, yeah, if you're getting caught up in all that stuff, yeah, you need to go sleep on a on a concrete floor and get eaten by ants. <laughs> 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 and uh, it's, it's it's called the the term for it is practice poverty. Practice poverty.
0: Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, um, so how do you keep motivated and find meaning in life after making all this money? Good question. Um.
1: How do you feel motivated with life? Um,
0: How do you stay motivated? So, because we're all I mean, the goalposts
1: change, right? Because if you if you chase the money, then that's inevitably going to hit some kind of fault. So, I mean, I kind of have spent a lot of time over the last year, like really trying to understand. And again, when I go back to that, like, when I was twenty seven, I realized I was financially free. There's been, that's like that's like six years ago now. So I've had a lot of time to like develop what mattered and it came down to like money is not the most important thing and that's when we did sell the business and I got all this went to a whole different world of of money I was it didn't really change anything because that was not my core focus so I guess it's really understanding and spending time like who you are as a person and what you really get excited by so I know like from speaking to you you love doing this podcast and speaking to people right so you've kind of like repurposed and found something that you really enjoy um for me I really like helping people. I really like having interesting chats. Um, so for me, like doing angel investments is quite a cool thing because I get to speak to a business owner, I get to learn about them as a person. I get to learn how they deal with their issues. I get to understand that's like doing that's like been really cool. Um, when I was a kid, I have this theory about like when people are kids, like what's your decision-making process as a kid. So when I was like six or seven. And my decision-making process of what I'm going to do for the next hour is what's fun. Yeah. So, like, for me at the time, it was playing football and computer games, playing Sonic on the Sega Mega Drive or whatever it was. So I try and think about things a bit more simpler, like what's actually fun and what do I actually enjoy and focus on those things to stay motivated. Because I'm really motivated by doing things that I enjoy. Absolutely. And as a kid, that's your decision-making process. So maybe going back to that a bit more rather than, yeah
0: rather than the next uh, massive thing that is just going to be more stress and more yeah 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 awesome um, education so you didn't do great at school but you went to use uh, you went on to use the new social media mega trend to start an awesome business so what do you think about the education system in the early 2010s and what are your thoughts today and the entire goal here is kind of if there is some parents listening here or even us as parents you know basically the next question will be what what will you do with your kids mm-hmm. regarding education if you have kids you know like what's you thinking about basically the entire education system how it was back then how we evolved and put this in parallel with to evolution of the technology and how it's all changing the game in terms of career, whether building businesses or just like building skills to develop a career.
1: So I think the number one way to think about education, which is maybe quite difficult for people who are like, again, like going about the new generation of like TikTok and all this kind of stuff, you get easily distracted. But it's like, what's gonna be most important for people from their education, is their application of their time into various, because it's all there now. The difference between when we was at school, like we're talking about primary and secondary school, to, and we're talking about like, I guess, in like the Western world, so we're talking about like, you've got access to a computer, basically. If you're at that point, then the time spent in school is going to be very difficult to, um, to change. But if we could change it, then it'd probably be more understanding of like financial stuff because that's how the world goes around. That's how you build your lifestyle all around finances. Yeah, there's very limited things taught about that. So if we could change that, then great. Let's introduce some of the stuff we talked about today regarding like passive income, how money works, how the economy works when it comes to like personal finances would be much more important. But the difference now is, level of information available and sipping through the bullshit is another point but the third point is the application into wanting to learn this kind of stuff because i know i've got i know people who just don't really want to learn about this stuff right so do they want to want to learn maybe but it's all about allocating time to learn and understand so i think if going back to me as a parent, I think the number one thing is access. So, give an opportunity to learn, uh, but I think developing the capacity to want to learn is probably the number one thing that I would want to provide in some in some capacity. How would you do that? Um, so, again, I think Naval talks about this, but and I've already mentioned it when I talked about like. I read the Paul Gascoigne book. So the first book that I read was really fun to read, completely by chance. My dad had it. I picked it up one day and I really enjoyed it. But having fun learning, number one, then probably enables like further learning down the line. Mm. How, do you, how do you get... How do you enable that to happen?
0: Um, it's
1: a pretty tough question.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I don't know how I would answer I don't know how I would answer. I
1: think I think it's de- it's developing that and like Naval said that he loved it and he developed a learning for it. And again I'm going on about it again, but like reading for me was always big and still is big now. I think de- he says developing the learn for loving.
0: Yeah, I think he just I think he says read what you love until you love yeah. reading or something like exactly
1: that. Exactly that. So I loved football. So I read a book about a footballer. I loved it. And I got from cover to cover and I really enjoyed reading. So um, I actually did that completely by accident. Like you have to have a bit of luck and things like that are so lucky. Like I could have picked up my first book and I hated it. I actually had to read Harry Potter when I was a kid and I got bored after the first page. I was like, I'm never reading ever book. But then happened to be reading that one. So yeah, that's, that's quite a good one. Um, I mean, I don't know what school's going to be like now slash 10 years but just think of all the personalization and decentralization of education the whole world's going to change like people people in indonesia will have the same access to schooling as people in the uk if they haven't already i'm sure in some private schools in different parts of the world they probably do have it but it's going to change the job market so there's a lot to yeah what to think about with that
0: what will you tell parents today about how the this internet and mob- mobile waves just change the whole game in terms of career possibilities you know if you still have some I think parents probably have to today realize and kind of acknowledge how this changed the game but if you still have some people you know, for you it was 10 years ago so like that's you know like how did you even go about like I don't know, justifying to your parents or where they just open mind or, or just maybe just, just didn't understand anything. It's like, just do whatever you feel like. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, what would you tell parents? Like, if you had to explain, yeah. hey, look, like, I mean, you can say, look, I've built this massive business that I sold to this massive group. So, there's, but, yeah,
1: there's two, there's two sides to the coin. So the one side of coin is, I honestly reckon, this is like a big thing, but playing Age of Empires as a kid, and playing poker as a kid resulted in my ability to run a business in some ways now I'm pretty sure if I was playing that for six seven hours a day my parents would get my back and say I'll go outside or do something else but I really enjoyed doing that like another example is like um we went to our friend's wedding Charles uh two days ago mm. and uh He's like a super successful guy in the crypto world. And he used to smash World of Warcraft like yeah. crazy, you know. And I've heard that many times. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, basically, the crypto guys are the most successful. They're either ga- gamers or poker players. Yeah. So you're you're They're en- poker players. So
1: you're enabling. You're facing challenges. and You're enabling it through different mechanics. Just so, and then you can reapply that in later in life. So that's point number one. And point number two is the bullshit side, which again I'm going on about it before, but like the TikTok side. So what I used to do was, um, this is like during my poker days, but I would literally like break up my days and have like, I used to have a journal, which is a bit, this is a bit weird actually more I think about it, but I would literally have like a, a day journal. I used to track every time, the time that I spent. So I'd be like, okay, so I'll sleep eight hours probably. So I've got 16 hours. I've got this much time to learn about stuff, this much time where I'd be at work and this much time to like do whatever and it's all available now on your screen time so like absorbing is not probably the best thing when it comes to like social media but if you're actively involved in like problem solving slash games slash learning that's actually a completely different thing um so I mean I'm not a parent so I'm probably not the best person to answer but I think that is kind of is I mean it's there's so many people who have come who's, who've played these games or whatever and been successful it's not and not like it is a real thing and I think it's because you, you're constantly problem solving and, and doing that kind of stuff so that's useful but at the same time there's loads of other shit that's not useful so yeah. identifying the difference between the two is probably quite a good thing and then I mean god knows how much career how much understanding of those types of things is going to be even more important going forward with all this crazy metaverse slash yeah. computer stuff going on you know Absolutely. so um, I think you have to be welcoming to it as opposed to
0: the opposite Okay, awesome. So basically, this kind of, yeah, I think it wraps up this part about like the mobile era that we basically call also Web2 that created totally new jobs. We've seen and new businesses, we've seen with your example. Uh, And that basically no level of education could have prepared you for, you know, like all these Instagrammers, YouTubers, podcasters, influencers, like even influencers that became much more famous than the previous generation of celebrities. And so basically this leads us to pretty beautifully to the next topic, which where all the same is happening again, which basically is web three and crypto. Mm -hmm. So now we have this web three thing that is creating yet again, a whole set of new jobs, such as, I mean, probably NFT collectors, yield farmer, like whatever. And again, we have this pattern where no education could prepare anyone for, for that and it's creating the biggest technological adoption that we've ever seen by a factor of two. So basically, it's going twice as fast as the internet was growing, and internet was really the thing that grew the fastest before that and equally important, if, if not more, it's basically creating the largest wealth transfer or wealth building possi- uh, uh, opportunity that we've ever seen before, especially for young technology savvy ones as we just talked about with this basically link to gamers and people who spend a lot of time on computers. So let's talk very briefly about crypto. What's your understanding of crypto? So my understanding most comes from uh, people like you.
1: <laughs> and I agree for friends. Um, my, i probably, it probably stem from FOMO to start with. Um, but my understanding of crypto is um the way I view it is almost like a, it's a hedge against the world, number one. Number two, it's part of my portfolio. And I feel like I've got to a position where I have a good understanding of which assets are worth holding and which aren't. Um, And I set and leave it like I would do with funds. So that's kind of where it, where it came from. Um, The more I learn about it, the more I'm excited about it. Like, I mean, when you look at stable kind like Warren Buffett compounded at twenty percent per year, and he was like probably one of the best ever. And I can just literally shove it in uh, like a yield farming app, for example, and just like do, I know there's like there's no regulation, all these like, extra risks that come with it, but my understanding is as a is just seeing it as an asset and something that I need to hold to be able to be balanced.
0: So, so what's your approach like as a as a young net worth, a high net worth individual? What's your concrete approach towards the field? You know, like what do you th- I'm going to allocate the percentage of my whole net worth. It's going to be that much. I'm going to rebalance. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to see how much it evolves, and what are like the, know, the the few projects or coins or that you're invested in and why? why?
1: Yeah. So I would say. Um, I initially planned to have about 5% of my net worth in crypto. It's now about 10%. Um, it may increase. So, I mean, I literally just hold, it's dead simple asset allocation. So I have like Bitcoin, ETH, and Luna. And then I hold like quite a lot of stable coins in various different yielding wallets. Um, so it's more of a set and forget than like buy and sell or any of that kind of stuff. I take the same approach to crypto as I do with my like normal stocks and investments. Um I don't proclaim to be an expert in that, but I think the way that I approach it is probably the healthiest way to do it in terms of holding. Um, and I kind of try and take in various different opinions like we spoke about earlier. Like I speak to people like you, obviously like heavy in crypto and you have like your point of view. And then I'll see I mean, most recently, like people like, even like Kevin O'Leary, who's on, on Shark Tank, it's a not a great example, but he's got his own YouTube channel now. And he's more of like a the old school investment style. So like, you, I don't know what you would recommend and well, you're really high net worth in crypto, right? So yours is like super high. Kevin O'Leary's like at 5%. So I kind of go like in between and take a bit of a, an in-between area. Mm. Um, so that's my approach to it. I could look back in 10 years and think I should have been like 50% net worth in crypto. That's probably that's probably what you would say. What do you think's right? Percent uh, net mean, worth my, crypto. would you say?
0: I mean, I think it really depends on how much net worth you have and how much risk tolerance risk. you have. And I mean, volatility tolerance you have. Mm-hmm. And basically how much you spend so much time in the field that it becomes a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Because nothing... You know they always say uh, the, the 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 more the more information the ha- you have, the less diversified you have, mm-hmm. uh, you are. Sorry, and it all comes down to conviction. But the conviction is being built by spending lots of time and understanding everything, and and not panicking if everything goes down eighty percent, which is happening pretty often in crypto. And again, like taking I don't know, you you have a certain number that you reach, and then you say, okay, actually this number if I take 20% of that number, I can still cover all my life with passive income. So the other 80%, what's the, what's the maximum I can put in a very volatile environment by keeping the other percentage, let's say 20% or 50% or whatever, that yield me in a pretty safe fashion. Passive income, that's e- enough mm-hmm. to... I to, to
1: think what causes a lot of the stress with crypto is the accessibility to information on it. So like, Like Luna today, for example, is up twenty four percent. Like, like I've got friends who invest, um, who like run like family offices and stuff like that. And like, again, like yesterday, so the FTSE was down like four percent, and the world goes insane. Mm. Like, yeah, Luna's up twenty four percent today. It could be down thirty percent tomorrow. And you just, it only takes time. But I'm actually now completely numb to it. I would say, absolutely, yeah. That's that's just comes from. But then when you look at the whole market and go, "Oh well, I mean, you can have these like four or five X years with some assets, but it comes with volatility. So you just have to, it comes with the
0: territory really. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, So you've witnessed first-hand Web2 and you massively benefited from it. I mean, you took advantage of it. How big do you think this Web3 crypto thing is and why? The biggest part for me... Which is what I'm most excited about is
1: like around community, and around like a, like the shared the shared benefit of various different projects. So like the way that business has been built always is like shareholders are the main beneficiary. You have like one or two main beneficiaries in a in a certain business or whatever, um, and that's been actually enabled further by. The internet in general, because it's the, it's the the central actually the centralization of the internet, where people can access more customers across more markets, but it's still only one or two beneficiaries. So that's actually not decentralized because you you're kind of pull the money into one space, So like Silicon Valley, for example. Those business models can cover the whole world, but still only one or two beneficiaries. Whereas this whole new world is enabling the opposite of that, opposite of that, so it's actually becoming more. It's becoming more accessible to to everybody in in some ways, but other ways not. So, I mean, I saw uh, Jack from Twitter post the other day about Web three and how it's like just becoming like a massive like. Basically, the the VC's in Silicon Valley is going to eat it all up, mm. but I think there's there's good sides to it where. Yeah, you kind of have more of a community feel, and it's actually it does become more decentralized, and more and more people can benefit from it in a way Um, with tokenization, everything else. So that's that's really cool, but I think it's all to be seen, right?
0: Absolutely, there's a lot of promises, and there's the kind of philosophical aspect that's beautiful, but like then there's a difference between the the hopes and the actual execution and how the thing is going to evolve. Absolutely. I think we'll just go with the last two questions which first one is what's your definition of happiness? I
1: feel like I should have prepared for this question I think being able to spend time doing what you want to do every day maybe a good place to start (laughs) that's simple playing golf every day (laughs) the rest of your life (laughs) Yeah, being, uh, being, uh, being able to do what you can do every day and be free. But free, as we've discussed, freedom is comes in many different forms. Yeah. Capital, mental, physical, yeah. everything. So, so free, freedom freedom's a
0: big part of it. Yeah, so being in a good, basically, mental health place, physical health place and financial health place. Awesome. Finally, what is it to be in your mind? What is it to be <laughs> in your mind? What, what is what it it's like? Yeah.
1: My, my personal mind.
0: Yeah. So people might think, oh, this guy is just like so successful. Like he just made it and all that stuff. But like, what would you say? You know, you always, that, it's, it's another naval thing basically. Like you see someone who's super successful, but you need to take them, their life, but not only the successful side, you need to take e- everything from their life. Would you do it? You know? Mm. So like, and people don't know. People don't know. Yeah. Okay. So like, that's the. Yeah, I've got the question.
1: So, I a good way to describe it is. Let me think. Had to be in mind. It's probably, probably quite a stressful place to be. And to give people context, like I spent a lot of time trying to, and I have done over my the last ten years because I've always had quite. A, Guess what people could, I've probably gone through quite a lot of stressful things building a business at such a young age, right? But I spend a lot of time really trying to nail down like mood. So what that tells people is I'm not always in a good mood. It's not always like I'm not I don't wake up every day because I'm now rich and everything's great. Like I spend a lot of time investing in trying to understand like what what makes me feel good. And it's really simple. It's like exercise, spending time with friends, having good conversations, or whatever. Because a lot of the time, when I'm doing all the work stuff, I'm obviously it's obviously not always always that fun. So I would say it's pretty chaotic, um, bit of a roller coaster, but overall, uh, yeah, pretty fun. And not in the way the way I the way I try and live my life is like I and this is like. Something that I've I think about a lot, and it's something that I kind of try and live by is, if I if I like died next year, like when my when my best friend got ill and and that happened, really was a bit of a wake up call at twenty five. Like, holy shit, this can happen to anybody. Mm. And if I got really ill next week and found out I've only got a year left or something, I think I would feel I'd probably go to go to think about it and think, oh, yeah, I've had a pretty fulfilled life. So that's a good place to be.
0: Awesome. So basically, it's a self-awareness journey that's kind of never-ending. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing about it. You can just go deeper and deeper and just... Yeah, you just want to know. It's basically this entire like circle... I don't know if you call that the circle of life. But you're getting back to the basics, mm-hmm. which is what are the things that really make me happy or why am I, I don't know, moody or why, what's happening and trying to understand so you can basically just feel as great as possible every day Mm. with the simplest things.
1: But then to even think about that, I get going back to your story as well. Like we both do that and that's, we've we've talked about this a lot, but to even think, to have to think about what makes me happy, to even have that thought is because you ain't that happy, you know, and you go through some shit and like building a business over 10 years is, is pretty brutal. And you have to change like how you behave with people, like what you spend your time on doing. You don't always do things you want to do, but, to then come through the back end of it and spend a lot of time thinking what does make me happy is
0: probably because that wasn't actually that fulfilling in the first Absolutely. place anyway. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's a good insight. I mean, me, to be honest, like if I think, I mean, now I'm just not thinking, which basically is probably a sign that I'm really feeling great. But to be honest, my 20s, building these businesses and doing all these investing stuff and hurting my, like, I don't think I was really happy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't have any problem to say it. mm mm-hmm. But I kind of—I mean, my goal was this financial freedom thing because I was like, I want to reach that before I get a family and all that stuff because I want to be able to be at home or take care of the kids or whatever, whatever. If I have kids one day, whatever, be there for my family, be there mentally. But then I was like, man, like, I have a girlfriend. I'm not there mentally. Like, I'm not—all the thing I want to get to is just the opposite happening in my life now, hmm. and uh, I was just uh, yeah, just not happy. Like, I, I was—I I was not happy. Mm. like, but, but again, like they say, like, you need to kind of make yourself feel miserable Mm. (laughs) to get to these goals so that all this money stuff is behind you. And then you can work on like the real stuff Mm. where you help people out and you think about yourself and all that stuff. So, yeah. So the less you think, the more you're happy. (laughs) 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 Okay. Awesome. That was awesome. Do you want to add anything? we've said enough. <laughs> I think. Um don't, I don't think
1: uh I think that's okay. I mean I'm trying to post more on my own social media at the moment. Do a few e-com things, um, try and share things like as I on not go. So if anyone is interested they can uh follow me on social media.
0: Where like where do you post the most?
1: You wanna say like So I'm in the moment, I'm trying to set up a website and get everything sorted, but I haven't got that yet. So uh, yeah, probably just my Instagram.
0: Instagram, which is? Jimmy
1: Hill. Jimmy Hill. We changed the I for a a one. I'm sure you can put it in there.
0: We'll do that. We'll do that. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. That was awesome.